Hello again, everybody. Welcome, welcome, and uh, thank you once again for coming by another Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream podcast thing. <laughs> I never know what to exactly classify this as. I don't know if it really counts as a podcast, but I have it on the podcast networks, right? Definitely a story, definitely Dungeons & Dragons. Podcast, I don't know what the qualifications are. Right? I'll hope that this counts. Um, <clears throat> so today is a uh, pretty big story. Beat, a uh, pretty big day for the Merge World story. Um, we'll be beginning a new chapter. <clears throat> a very large new chapter. Um, and we'll also be starting the first non-pre-played content. This is content that is... Uh, specifically written for this and was was never played by the original players. So, hello Michael, Rhino, Ashley and Smitty. Welcome, welcome. I'm uh, excited to uh, <clears throat> bust into tales and stories with you all. Um, I'll let you know that uh, I've written a lot the last few days and my fingers still hurt. I used to write D&D all the time. This is the first time I've really put pen to paper in a long time and realized I am out of practice. My handwriting's sloppy and my hands hurt. So I obviously need to practice more, which I don't think will be a problem since uh, everything moving forward, I'll be writing. So we will see. Um, I will warn you now. I have absolutely no idea how long this episode will last. It might get done early. It might take twice as long. I have no idea. I've got no frame of reference. Reference, I've written a lot, um, but there is a specific point we have to get to to end the stream today. So, um, if we get there early, we'll just chat after that. If we get there late, uh, we'll, hopefully some of you will hang around. So, we will see. So, there's not as much recapping to do, um, since this is uh, all new content. I will say... Um, at the end of last week's stream, I did a little bit of setup for the children uh, and kind of which direction they were going. Um, Seraph, obviously, uh, trained to be a warrior like his father. Deacon, Firemoon, um, his best friend. Both trained as a warrior and as well uh, to control wild magic, something he was born with the gift to tap into. Uh, I'm going to go in order of age. Next is Maeve, daughter of Darsh the Minotaur. Maeve Fohammer, um, who is in Serenity, training to be a cleric of Zorn, the god of truth. Uh, also, then there is Petal, the half-human, half-kender daughter of Dandy, who is uh, also born with the ability to tap into wild magic. Uh, so she's training to be a mage. And then that leaves us with Artis, Princess Artist, Daughter of Mercy, who is also trained to be a Cleric of Zorn, God of Truth. And lastly of our children is Ran Quan. And Ran is the um, son of one of Mercy's knights, Shen Quan, who just goes by Quan, really. Um, but Ran is kind of a mixture, at least the, the path at the beginning is a little bit more of a mixture towards uh, a warrior with some rogue aspects, which is very much like what his father was. His father is basically training him to take over the family business of protecting the royal family. So, it's kind of where the children sit. Um, 
So Maeve spends three out of every four months in Serenity. Same with Deacon. I have some cats going crazy over there or something. Yep, <laughs> I got some cats. Uh, so they both spend three months out of the uh, of the, out of four months in Serenity training, and then they go home and spend a month with their families. Um, Artists, Petal, and Sarah uh, Rand, they all live there all the time, of course. So I finished up last time. Uh, the children were discussing the upcoming festival. It was about a month beforehand, and it was the uh, Serenity... Um, grab the actual name here. Unity Festivals. The day celebrating Serenity's birth as a country and when all of the different towns and such have all merged together to form the Kingdom of Serenity. Uh, so it's a big deal. It's the biggest holiday of the year. It's a huge festival. It lasts more than a week. Um, and where we're going to be starting is kind of in that week before the festival kicks in. <clears throat> but before we do that, I have a lot of reading today, because unlike normal, I've written out a large part of what I'm going to do. I'm still going to reword it as I go along, but I have the basics of the writing all the way down. Uh, but I wanted to say that way, way back in the beginning, when the story was just about Rafe and Nilat Firemoon, that section or that chapter, um, I always called Brothers Under the Flaming Moon. And then up until this point, what would be in the second chapter um, was always um, Fate of the Touched. Because uh, I've discussed before what it means to be touched or God touched and how the character that affects the characters and how they live. Um, so the chapter that we're stepping into now. Uh, is ca I, I've called The Path of the Chosen. Um, who that is re referencing, we will find out. Um, but that's kind of where we're going to start off today. So I'm going to start with a, a little something written potentially in the future. And uh, we'll see how it starts, okay? As I sit here in the darkness, surrounded by these dark stone walls and the ghosts of even darker memories... Thousands of miles from everyone I've ever known or loved, I feel I must begin by telling an absolute truth. Everything that has happened was my fault. The things I have done, the choices I have made, and all of the consequences of them. While I know I am not worthy, I can only hope that those I've hurt, those I've lost, and those I left behind may one day come to forgive me. If not, may they at least understand why I chose the path I must walk alone. I must now walk alone. Destiny, prophecy, the will of the gods. In the end, only we can choose our fate. This was my choice. It's always been my choice. And that is signed, Seraph Bloodborne. Date unknown. So, we begin, as I mentioned, about a week before the festival starts. Um, I'm going to kind of talk about the state of Serenity. Um, over the last years of peace, Serenity has drastically exploded in people. Um, it is huge at this point. The city itself around the keep um, 
is pretty much at this point the size of Arduel, which is the second largest city uh, of the human cities, anyways. It's bigger than Thorman at this point. Um, people have flocked to this area and underneath of Mercy's Banner uh, because of how well people are treated here. You know, that gets around. People want a part of that. Um, so the city itself is exploding in population and size. Uh, from the keep at this point, you would not be able to see the city's gates. Uh, to Just to give an idea, this was originally just a small town and a keep around a lake. Uh, the lake is still a big thing. The lake is kept. And north of the city, which was a huge forest, is still there. Um, a chunk was cleaved on the uh, uh, cleaned out of the direct north of the lake because that's where the mage tower was built. The temple is in the, I guess you'd say, southwest corner. And the keep is in the southeast corner. So the three of them kind of form a triangle. <clears throat> um with the entire south of the lake being where the city is, and the city wrapping all the way around the eastern side up to the Mage Tower. But the area between the temple and the Mage Tower, the northwestern side, is still very much forest and such. There's a road that goes to the uh, Realm Gate, which is <clears throat> a ways away. Um, day, day and a half by travel at this point with the road there. It's definitely sped up. Uh, but there's still a lot of nature up there, and that's been a big pull for Mercy. She wants to keep it nice up there. And I'm going to reference that again in the future, but I wanted to stress that now. It's um, She's always wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a big, giant city. She wanted to make sure there was nature and stuff, especially with Artemis being an elf and such. She wants to make sure there's lots of trees around the, around the uh, temple. Um, where we are right now, the city is being de decorated, mostly done, there are banners and flags, lights everywhere. Um, all sorts of different decorations of different kinds. The streets and the city itself have been very, very much cleaned. Uh, the populace themselves uh, taking it upon themselves to clean it out. Not only is this festival very important to all the citizens of Serenity, it's also a huge opportunity for businesses and trade. Uh, people come from other kingdoms just to to trade or buy or sell here at the festival because it draws so many vendors from so many different areas. Um, because of that, of course, the city is packed even more so than normal. Again, people have traveled from everywhere. Outside the city's gates, um, a large, uh, you know, there's already, the city, there is a city wall at this point. I should straight stress that. There's a city wall which really kind of goes around the older part of the city. Um, but the outside the city, the grown, it's grown even more. And even outside of what would be considered the city proper, there's been a lot of growth of you know, tents and such. A lot of people there who are here temporarily and can't afford maybe an inn for the night. The inns at this, getting an inn would not be easy either at this point. Um, so there's just you know, a lot going on. People coming in. There's a, an actual official marketplace at this point, which is pretty large. Uh, not quite as big as Paxa Walls, but it's getting there. Um, so it's packed to the walls, and even in alleys and free places on the street, um, you'll find booths and vendors, people who set up a table here, a chair there, um, and then a lot of locals uh, who have the opportunity are temporarily renting out space. You, you know, we'll work out a deal. You put your booth right in front of my store and help direct people inside. You pay a small amount. Uh, you get to have a spot right in front, you know, underneath my awning. So if it rains, you don't get wet, you know, things of that nature. So there's, again, just a lot of opportunity for 
uh, trade and business. Um, and that's again, there are a lot of people have come to the city for that. Uh, also attending are going to be nobles and delegates from most of the other kingdoms. Um, it would be understanding in a, an event this big that everybody who's an ally sends some type of representative, right? Um, Coromon, the Dwarven Kingdom, uh, has, an, has an envoy there. They're very close with Serenity. Over all these years, they've even grown closer. Um, through the Realm Gate, of course, they were, they were really the, one of the first kingdoms to deal and trade with the dwarves, um, and that has only increased um, almost on a dependable level. You know what I mean? In many ways, Serenity and its mining and rock and gathering of that nature has almost come to a standstill. There's very little need for that. It is just cheaper to get it from the dwarves. At the same time, businesses like wood and fishing and food stuff and farming, things of that nature, a lot harder to do under the ground, um, the dwarves have come to depend on, on, on that from Serenity. So uh, each side is benefited from this uh, through trade and so on, uh, so that both of them are, are very closely linked. And hello, Demon Blade Channel TV. Welcome. Um, so there's also going to be somebody there from Paxwall, someone from Arduel, someone from Thorman. All the different groups are going to have somebody there. Uh, most of the groups are not going to have what I would call named people, right? Nobody they know overall. It's an ambassador or something like that. By this point, every city probably has an ambassador who regularly comes to or even stays in um, Serenity. Uh, there is a there is a building that is owned by the dwarves themselves that Cole, who's still the ambassador for them, their friend Cole the dwarf, uh, purchased. They purchased that, and that's kind of their building. When they're in town, there's always somebody there. It's almost like a... Uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? consulate, something like that, although it's still Mercy's land overall. Uh, but most of the mayors from the local towns are here. <clears throat> uh, Firemoon has some people here. Again, mostly unnamed people, but there'll be a couple. Um, the one big disappointment is sadly that Darsh Fohammer, a uh, Minotauran friend, uh, was unable to attend. He had definitely planned on doing so, but a trade dispute had opened Um over in, in an area of land and such that he had domain over, and he unfortunately had to stay to be directly involved, uh, which was a bit of a disappointment to his daughter Maeve, who was there and um, was going to be part of the, you know, choir and all those kind of things for the, from the temple. But at the same time, she 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 she's one of those people who's like, hey, my dad's out there being a good dude, taking care of people here. She very much idolizes her father. Um, and so at this point, he's not there, but knows it's for the good reasons. It's not that he just didn't want to come. Uh, it would take something pretty important to keep Darsh from showing up. So Darsh would not be there. The celebration really ends up starting a few days early. As I mentioned, as vendors start to pop up, people start selling and trading, you know, officially or beforehand. But once the, the actual festival begins, which is kicked off by a speech from Mercy and such, there's then officially seven days of celebration after that. Um, Artemis, of course, is busy dealing with the temple and such. The temple's also grown over these years, um, and it has become a location sought after by many other clerics. Um, Artemis has taught at other temples throughout their adventures and um, is well known to be not just a, a you know, head of a temple who hangs out there teaching and praying. She's willing to go out in the world and make change and to affect things and get her hands dirty. Um, and so a lot of clerics who feel that kind of pull as well will be drawn to that. 
And so they're clerics of many, many different religions that come and go. Many of them live there. And on occasion, an evil god or evil cleric will come through with permission um, and will stay and spend time. And just because you're an evil cleric, you, they're never going to see one of death and decay. That's just not going to walk onto a temple of healing. But, you know, if, technically the sea god is an evil god. But that doesn't mean, you know, cleric of the sea god may not come through. As long as they don't cause problems, right? If they're there to... You know, seek education and seek assistance. Artemis is always an open ear. Um, Dandy and Michael, um, as I mentioned in one of the, the, the presets, um, have a store at this point. Uh, and it's a store specialized for those who hunt undead. Um, she is uh, it's run mostly by Dandy uh, and Michael. Um, at this point, it's gotten well enough from even when I mentioned it before that they have actually hired um, a smithy uh, an actual uh, weaponsmith uh, named Balron Fordstone. He's a dwarf from Corman. Um, he works now for them, uh, f- making weapons and tools for hunters, as well as Michael, but the guy's just, you know, 180 years old. He's got way more experience than Michael when it comes to the crafting. Um, and their store has become quite a popular place for those who hunt the undead. Um, people come through there. Not only are they cel- celebrities in that regard, they're well known to be incredibly successful at that. Um, they're just, again, they're tools and the stuff they supply. With Dandy having a connection to Artemis, things like holy water, potions of healings, things of this nature, uh, maybe even the occasional uh, ring or scroll uh, protection from lycanthropy, things like that, that's the type of stuff you might find at their store, as, long as, as well as things, garlic, silver weapons, you know, things that you'd expect, wooden stakes, whatever. Um, they're going to be well-crafted and well-made. Um, at this point in her life, Dandy's Wanderlust has faded. Um, it is common in their young, you know, late teen, mid to late teens, for Kendra to feel this drive to travel the world and seek adventure and new things. Um, but once they get an age where they start having children, the wanderlust begins to fade. And for some, it comes back when they get older. For some, it does not. Um, it's mostly gone for Dandy. She is content living in serenity with her friends, running the store, raising her daughter. Um, all of that. So it is a rare, rare day that she leaves Serenity on a hunt any longer. Michael still does. He doesn't leave as often as he used to. But when he does leave, it's usually for something much larger. You know, a group of hunters come through and they're, hey, we found a very powerful undead group over here that's creating more, and it's beyond what most of us can handle. A lot of times, Michael goes in those situations. And can occasionally be accompanied by Draven and Tevin. Um, the three of them have become kind of a little trio uh, of hunters for multiple different reasons. Uh, but Michael still goes out on the hunt, not as often, but usually when it's a bigger fish to try to catch there. Um, the children, of course, are all very excited about this. They all have their parts to play. Petal and Deacon will have uh, be part of the magic display on the second night. Uh, Artists and Maeve will be part of a thing. Artists, it's a very special year because artists will be in charge of lighting the flame of serenity. Uh, it is a flame that stands in a park in the northwestern section of the lake. So there's a small park uh, along that nature I talked about, a lot of trees and such up there. There is a very nice park that's been built there. It's part of why the nature is still there. Between the temple and the um, mage tower. And at this park... There's a big, you know, huge brazier, and the flame burns all the time. Um, on the day of the unity, the flame is put out that morning, and it is relit. Up until this point, always by, by mercy 
or Mercy and Ulrich. Uh, but this year, Artis will be doing it herself. She's old enough to do it. It's a big honor, and she's a little nervous about it, right? But uh, she's not a big fan of the pomp and ceremony, but it is a big deal for her, and she's kind of excited there as well. Uh, let's see. Now, the only other thing I would say is after the week is over, after the week of celebration and over, there's a special trip that is planned. Um, Deacon has a younger brother who will be having his first birthday about four or five days after the end of the, of the festival. So Deacon will be returning home for that. He is taking Seraph and the other children with him. Um, it, the children are very excited because Seraph's never been to Kingdom of Fire Moon before. Um, and Deacon's very excited to show his friend where he's from. And the other children are going as well. Um, and this will be the first trip without their parents. Um, it was something that was talked about for a while. But as they're getting older, these things are going to have to happen. Um, and what a perfect opportunity uh, to do that. You know, So that's, that's something that the kids are very excited for after the festival. Um, let's see what I got here. Other things I'll mention that will happen. Both Quan and Wade are fathers. And we mentioned Ran already. Um, Wade has a baby. It's only a year or two old. Seamus and Miyasha also have a son. Um, and <laughs> big baby. <laughs> big baby. Uh, but they also have a son. All the knights are married or involved one way or another. Uh, Seamus and Miyasha actually own the largest inn in Serenity. Um, several years earlier, Seamus and uh, Seamus had wanted to you know, have land of his own, and Mercy offered it, and he's like, yeah, I'm just not really, I don't want a little keep, I don't want a little farm, that's not my thing. He grew up work, you know, in a town and such, so he bought the inn, something he could leave to his children. So um, the Lady's Fist, which was named after Mercy, you could tell, they purchased it, and they, uh, they run it when they can. Um, so there's been, over this time period, it's been mostly peaceful. You know, small groups of brigands here and there, a couple goblins cross, there's a hill giant that comes into their land. Small things, but no big epic stories that everyone's had to be involved with. Serenity has had a long time of actual peace. The only concern that they really have is, of course, the Thieves' Guild. As Serenity has grown, so has the Thieves' Guild. And even after all these years of searching, Mercy is still absolutely no closer to catching or even learning the true identity of the Black Rose, who is the lady who is, runs the Thieves' Guild. Um, ever since she was first contacted by uh, Ventura, the gentleman who said that he was the uh, Thorn of the Rose, uh, she's had no contact with him or anyone else. Although, uh, word is that the, Ro the Black Rose has several thorns, which are her captains, who basically give out her orders and see that they are done. Uh, <laughs> and you get them done, if, if, if you're told. One way or another, you better. So, um, while that's gone on, they've yet to bring any of that. You know, they, they catch the occasional one now and again, but it's usually things like pickpockets, low-level stuff. People who've never met the Black Rose personally. Um, let's see. Serenity is also well known for the training of battle mages. Um, many mages now come for that as well, to do their time and then move on to cities to sell out their own uh, services. 
the, the country itself has increased. There's several new small communities that can be found uh, within the border, and the border itself has increased very much so to the south and west. Uh, there's even a small town now around the border fort that was built back when they were fighting Oromon years ago. Mercy is also known for trading in horses. She now currently has three griffin, uh, griffins. Her two, the two griffins they had did have a uh, little griffin, which is being raised and trained for artists to ride. Uh, I said that, is that? Um, Percy is now the second in command of the Templars. Um, I mentioned Percy in one of the short s- snippets at the end of the previous stream um, and wondered if anybody remembered who Percy was. Uh, Percy was the knight. Uh, or sorry, was the Templar that when the hundred plus of the Oromanian elites attacked the temple, he was the one that protected the children. When they found him, he was barely alive, sword still sticking in him and all that kind of stuff. Um, Over the years, he very often has been trusted with protection over things like Seraph and the other children to the point that he is very high ranked within the Templars now. Sir Ian still being in charge. Um, that, uh, because of Deacon being here, uh, Serenity and, Fire, and Kingdom of Fire Moon have also become very close friends. Draven now lives full time in the temple. Um, their home that they built to the north, uh, Tevin lives in alone, although it's quite common for him to be gone for a few weeks, then come into Serenity for a couple weeks. No one messes with his place. Um,. The only other point of notice I would mention is uh, Dandy and Michael at this point. Um, they have they just recently had uh, six gentlemen come into town hearing about the festival who had recently been uh, tracking a large group of miscellaneous undead to the south. It was odd. There was probably about 20 or 30 of them traveling together. That uh, The kind that don't normally have together. Uh, but they came through town to get supplies and such because they'd lost them somehow. Um, but again, this kind of goes back to that pattern I mentioned where Dandy and Michael have been tracking odd, strange groups of undead popping up more often than normal. That's kind of that thing that led to uh, connected with that. So they've been tracking those type of things. So I've done a little bit of the warm-up now. Um, I'm not sure how many of you are still there. Looks like the numbers have dropped heavy. But, uh, you know, I still appreciate those of you who are. Um, I'm going to kind of start reading a lot of the snippets that's going to push the story forward. Um, and I will stop to elaborate on times. So I'm going to begin. So this is uh, just a couple days before. Mercy was exhausted. The last week she'd not had a single moment to herself. Not only was she personally involved with planning the security for the festival, but it was also her duty to meet every ambassador, merchant lord, and noble who were visiting for the event. Mercy sat in her war room, which was, um, which was connected to the main hall, trying to quickly eat some lunch before the next guests arrived. Who's next, she asked, her mouth full of bread. Uh, next is the mayor of Oakleaf, Miss Magana Ladon, replied Shayla. Shayla was Mercy's assistant, who organized Mercy's schedule and kept Serenity's keep running like clockwork. Mercy had discovered her, discovered her a year earlier when she'd come to the keep looking for work. The young half-elf immediately proved her worth and became indispensable. Oh, Jim just got home. Yay! (laughs) So Shayla is uh, a new character. She is a half-elven. So she's a young half-elf, which means, you know, she's way older than Mercy. Elf, right? Uh, But she's she's younger than Artemis. 
Uh, and uh, she, not from a family, you know, no royalty, nothing special. Uh, she's just very smart. She came there looking just for work um, and then was very much recommended by some of the people who helped run the keep. Like, here's someone who's really being wasted in this role. Um, and she moved her way up very, very quickly to become uh, Mercy's personal assistant. She's, Mercy still has her squire, who does all the squire stuff. But as Mercy's life gets more complicated, a lot of the stuff fell outside of a squire's duty, and a squire just didn't have time. Um, Mercy finished her lunch quickly, and then she and Shayla went back into the main hall to meet the mayor. The last few years had been a great time for Serenity and its people. The kingdom was growing faster than could have ever been expected. Trade between the southern kingdoms was constant and profitable. The dwarven kingdom of Thorman had officially joined the southern kingdoms a year earlier, and while the elven nation of Santriel had yet to join, talks were currently underway, and some trade with the nation had already begun. It was the first real peace Mercy and her friends had experienced since the creation of this new world. All of them had been able to settle down and focus on their homes, families, and such. Of course, sometimes, after hours of endless pomp and ceremony, Mercy missed being on the open road on an adventure with her friends, but she wouldn't trade her life with her husband, daughter, and the people of Serenity for anything. Trying to hide her sigh as she looked at the long line of people waiting to meet her, Mercy couldn't help but wonder what Artemis was dealing with through all of this. Um, so, you know, Mercy and Orc are married. Queen and king. But Mercy's in charge. It's always been that way. People love Ulrich. Treat him like a king. Dude's got sway. But and when when things hit the fan, Ulrich's like, what do we do? <laughs> Mercy's like, this is what we do. You know, it's just always been kind of that way. Uh, so again, so Mercy couldn't help but wonder what Artemis was dealing through all of this. How in the world am I supposed to deal with all of this? exclaimed Artemis, looking at the piles of work still needing completed before the festival. From decorations to meals, prayer selections to standing order in the choir, it seemed everyone needed something that only she could decide. Miasha, Danica, and Kelvin were helping lighten the load as much as they could, even with Miasha being at the inn more. Soon after Seamus and Miasha had married and had their child, uh, several years earlier, they had purchased the Lady's Fist, Serenity's largest inn. Between their duties as knights and clerics, they did their best to be at the inn as much as possible. Artemis took a moment to look out the window over Serenity Keep, the lake and the city. Already the streets were packed with vendors, visitors and citizens bustling about, doing all they could to prepare for the festival. This was the most important holiday of the year and an opportunity to bring together the people of Serenity. As the nation's spiritual leader, she had a very special role to play. After Mercy gave her speech to officially begin the festival, Artemis would say the opening prayer to bless the kingdom and its people. <clears throat> Next, the temple choir would sing before the serenity flame would be relit and the prayer boats would be released onto the lake. The prayer boats are little paper boats that are usually made by citizens with a little candle in them and they're set out and they float out. It's very cute. Um, and they're, they're meant to be lighting a, a flame for those lost, you know, from years before, that kind of thing, you know, in memory of those. This was to be a very special year. <clears throat> Young Princess Artis would be lighting the flame for the first time. As heir to the throne, she was adored by the people of Serenity. Artemis wished she could be there to see it, but her place was with Mercy on the balcony overseeing the festival itself. 
the Serenity Flame stood on the opposite side of the lake near the temple. So, I've described this before. There's the lake, right? If we're looking down at the lake, there's a hill that kind of comes up and overlooks the lake. It's like a big crest. And that's where the keep was built. The keep over the years has come down that path, which was a road up to it, and built around it. And now it's down as well at the base of that hill. And at the base of the hill, there's another park there. And that's what the part of the castle overlooks that. So from there, they're able to like literally look down on the big park and out into the city and, and give speeches from a big balcony and such that are there. And there's stairs that go down the side, lead out so they can go out, people can come in, that kind of stuff. Um, the, the castle has doubled in size since, since way back then. Still, at least the other children would be able to watch. All of them would be with artists, each of them releasing a prayer brooch onto Serenity Lake, including her son Seraph. Thinking of Seraph's or thing of Seraph, Artemis couldn't help but sigh. He'd grown to become a quiet young man. He spent all of his time training or with Deacon. Artemis was incredibly happy the two boys had become friends. Deacon's happy and optimistic characteristics helped balance Seraph's more introverted nature. In fact, a few days after the festival, Seraph would be traveling home with Deacon to the Kingdom of Firemoon, along with the other children. Deacon's younger brother Alexander was to celebrate his first birthday, and all the children had been invited. They were all so incredibly excited, this being their first trip outside Serenity and anywhere without their parents. It had been a hard decision letting the children go without them. They hadn't time to go themselves right after the festival. Also, the children were growing and would need their time to come into their own. Outside of Serenity and Darstopia, there was no safer place for them than the Kingdom of Firemoon. Rafe was a close ally and would protect the children as if they were his own. Still, as Artemis looked out the bu- out, looked out at the busy city, she couldn't help but worry. Uh, that is so cute. I also love that they are besties. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could give you cute moments. Uh, all right. So this is just kind of setting the pace for how things are going, right? Setting up what's happening. Um, Artemis is in charge of a lot of stuff, right? Like I said, she's got to pick the standing order of who's going to stand where in the choir, <clears throat> which you'd think would be more of a musical decision, but it ended up becoming more about rank and file which gods would go together, who's up front, who, you know, she has to be very careful with that, because you can imagine that Mercy has to deal with political stuff all the time, right? It's people who are, there are probably people who are known as nobles in the kingdom at this point. There will be merchant lords who bought businesses, and there's always going to be political issues in any kingdom, and Mercy and her knights really have to rule over that and, you know, keep an eye on that. But those same type of issues can exist within the temple. Um, clerics themselves very often are seeking power. You know, maybe not like in a I want to rule the world kind of way, but to grow into their own as well. Some clerics probably want to rule the world, but you know, in general. Um, and different cl- groups of clerics worshipping a certain god who may not align with another group may politically try to you know, gain power or influence, especially over artists, who wouldn't want to be known as Artemis' famous, uh, favorite. You know what I mean? Um, so Artemis has to be very careful about those things when she sets things up to make not to show too much favor to to one religion or group over others, um, while at the same time not showing only favoritism to her own group, of the clerics of healing, um, to the point that it uh, disassociated the other groups. So she has to deal with a lot of that kind of political intrigue as well. Mercy and Dan, Mer- or sorry, uh, 
Dandy does not. Dandy's life is pretty interesting. And you'd think that as a kender, she'd be bored running the store. And she does, she's not. Um, people are always coming in there with weird stuff they don't know what else to do with. Hey, I think this doll I found is haunted. Things went weird in my house when we found it. Uh, hey, this is the axe that supposedly was used by a murderer. What do we do with it? So the store is half supplies, half curiosities at this point. There's all sorts of just weird stuff hanging around. Um, and it's, there have been times where she's had to take items to Artemis and be like, listen, I think this thing's legitimately bad. <laughs> I don't have the ability to destroy it. Can you cleanse it or whatever? And she can. You know, Artemis very often has that ability. She's very strong as a cleric at this point. Very strong. So there's like again a lot of a lot of those things, but it's always an interesting story. And hunters pass through regularly. Hunting has become a pretty big deal on Serenity. Um, different types of undead have crossed through the into Merge world, just like there were different groups of people. Um, some people are finding groups of undead they've never knew existed before, uh, and vice versa. So uh, when that happens, and here's a group of undead we don't know how to deal with. People trained to do that. People who spend their lives hunting. Um, that's who gets called in kind of a thing. Uh, so there's an organization of that. They're not so much a guild, if you will, but um, it, it is possible to become known in those circles. Um, and having there are key places you can go to find out where things need to be done. And some of it's a business. Some people are a hunter for money. They're like, hey, you're having a problem with this? Call me, we'll come in, you pay us, we'll take care of it. And some people just do it out of own, their own personal drive. Um, back in Paxiwal, um, there was a dwarven place where Dandy and Mike used to go to get their stuff. And that's where a lot of that happened. Um, Dandy's... Oh, hey, Patches. Dandy's in Michael's store has become that in Serenity. And as it's become a larger, more important city, uh, it's pulling in more and more people. So, so a lot of times... Groups will come in and say, hey, this is going on and we're not, we can't handle it. We need more people. Who do we get? And Danny and Michael can point them to other people. Sometimes Michael gets involved himself. And on the rarest of occasions, Dandy has gone, but it's not very common. Uh, let's see. I already mentioned that Darsh wasn't going to be able to be here. But the children are super excited about the trip. Um, for many reasons. You know, all want to kind of get away from their parents, right? Who doesn't want to do that? Um, I, I just... Oh, I should give this. At this point in the story, where we are right now, Seraph is 15 years old. Deacon is 12, and so is Maeve. Uh, both of them are recently 12. Pedal and Artis are recently 11, and Ran is 10, almost 11. So Ran's not much younger than uh, Pedal and Artis, um, but maybe like six months. But um, he is the youngest of the group. But Seraph is definitely the oldest, and always has been. Though when the groups spend time together, rarely does he ever get into a situation where he tries to take the lead. He's happy to just kind of fade in the back and come along. Naturally, it's artists or deacon who kind of step into that. Just by nature, not like in a ruling way, but when decisions need to be made, both artists and deacon, like that, although they, you know, they're not like ruling the group by any means. Maeve, who is incredibly strong-willed, um, almost always defers to Artis. Even though Maeve is a bit older than Artis, um, she looks up to Artis a little bit. Uh, not in the, I'm jealous you're a princess kind of way, um, but just, you know, the whole situation. Uh, thank you for that. I was curious about it. Oh, you're very welcome. I had to, uh, 
before I start putting this on paper, I had to sit down and go back through the story and math that out to make sure the ages worked out correctly. Because uh, I had mentioned exactly what time people had been born, and I had to go back and make sure I had those numbers right. Didn't want to be way off there. Um, so, let's see. The day before the opening uh, of the ceremony, um, there is a practice, of course, for a lot of things. The choir's been practicing at the temple. The children <clears throat> meet up at the park where the Flame of Serenity is. And at this point, it's still burning bright. It won't be put out till the next morning. Um, at sunup, it'll be put out by one of the knights. Uh, it's a different night every year kind of thing. Um, and then it'll be it'll stay dark until the sun goes down, and then it's lit again by artists. So that would, they wait till the sun's down so you can see it the furthest, right? It's a big city. Big flame pops up, people notice. So, they're pretty excited, but they're practicing, and while they're sitting there kind of hanging out and doing that kind of stuff, and, and artists has to give, not a, she doesn't really give a speech, she just has to say a few words, you know, like, and, uh, you know, with the lighting of this torch, once more will the flame of serenity burn, and may our hearts grow with, you know, just some small little line thing that, you know, in her head, she's gone over a thousand times to make sure she gets it right. She's constantly changing her inflection, trying to practice. Uh, but it's just the kind of thing her mo mother would always say when she lit it, and she's trying to, you know, emulate her mother. During that practice, while they're going on, uh, Deacon, and S Deacon was there, and he had a boat, because he, you know, everybody else had a boat, so he made one. But he hadn't really lost anybody. He didn't have anybody in particular to send that for. But he was there because Seraph wanted to. And it was important to Seraph to be there. Um, Seraph had a boat. And they make, most usually the children make them themselves. They carve them out of wood or paper, something like that. The whole point is you light them, they go out, and eventually it sinks and melts. It just stays out there, all these little candles on the lake for part of the festival. It looks real pretty. The lake's usually pretty, pretty calm unless it's storming. It's a good-sized lake, but you can see right across it. It's not massive. Um, so Deacon, you know, asking Sarah, you know, straight out, because they're friends and they, they don't hide anything. They ask straight out. They're like, so, uh, like, so why is it important to you? Like, why why do we need to be a part of this? You know, I mean, you, you it was important for you to be here, but, you know, you've never really said why. Because Sarah technically doesn't really have anybody he's lost either, right? Um, and Seraph, uh, in his particularly emo, moody way, um, said that, and he explains it to him, that it's important because each boat represents the lives given in, def in defense of the kingdom, the promise of those living to honor them, and to remember those who gave their lives so that they may live, all those that's, and all those that still do. <clears throat> because, you know, hill giant breaks in, there's a chance a couple people might die before it gets put down. There's still people who, who protect them. Um, and Seraph, for himself, is a little bit more of a, uh, an inward way. <clears throat> and I'm not, I won't go into detail, because it doesn't technically, but I'll say that uh, some things haunt Seraph. You know, some things bother him and weigh heavily on him. Things that have happened, things that he might have to do from time to time. Um, and so it's important to him to make sure that he uh, recognizes those lives who were lost. Um, now, while they're there hanging out, and, you know, as normal, they do their little practice and they just hang out for an hour and chit and chat and such. During this, Deacon and Petal are in a big conversation uh, because on the second night, that's when the mage display is going to happen. And they're both going to be a part of that, right? Casting a few spells, whatever things, causing effects. And the mages, of course... 
the higher ones make just huge things. So it's, it's the equivalent of a fireworks show, but with magic, right? So the second night is that kind of stuff. There's a little bit first night, but the, the big mage thing is that night. So a lot of the apprentices, depending on their levels, as they're, as they're, as they're getting up stronger within the, the, the mage hierarchy, they are going to be more involved and be able to do more stuff. Uh, and Petal and Deacon are both going to be involved on the second night. Now, um, Deacon is over there just chatting up with Petal. Petal's just going to town. Because, again, as I mentioned before, when Petal starts chatting, Petal doesn't stop. When she's excited about something, she'll sit and read a book quietly for hours. Won't say a peep, which is very unkender-like. When she gets starting, she definitely brings out her mother. And she'll just go on and on and on and on. And Deacon's just sitting there, like, listening to her. He's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, rapt attention. All this kind of stuff. Just sitting there. And, uh, well, Maeve and artists are chatting. And Ran is standing as close to them as possible, being a part of that. A lot of times he's just kind of sitting back in a chair, leaning against a tree, watching them all. Sarah spends a lot of time watching the other kids. Again, he's the oldest, right? But he, when he sees Deacon over with Petal, Seraph gets a little bit of a smile. He has a little bit of a smirk on his face. Um, because quite often you're going to find Deacon in rapt attention listening to what Petal says. Very often just sitting there listening to her and Oh, we're doing this? What's going on? This is happening? I'm so excited to be a part of that too, and so on and so forth. Uh, Seraph and Deacon are very close. And Seraph and Deacon can read each other very, very well. And while neither boy has ever said a thing about it, no one's ever mentioned it, Seraph knows that uh, Petal has a very special place in Deacon's heart. And Deacon quite, quite often... Uh, can be found always trying to be involved in anything that Petal is involved in. You can imagine them both being other group. The two of them learn together. They spend time in school. Uh, and, and, and Petal just, you know, of course, someone to chat to, someone to talk about magic with, someone that understands it. Um, so, yes, Petal, uh, Petal has a, a special place in Deacon's heart already, and the young boy is known to dote on her from time to time, though Petal is completely oblivious. So we're going to step into the night of the festival. All right, so we, these things all happen. Like I said, that happened the night before. People chatting up a storm, hanging out. They got their practice in. Everyone goes home and rests. Everything is pretty much set up as much as possible. You know, and as always, everyone's trying to get a good night's sleep. Uh, it's not always possible. It's like the day before Christmas, right? It's hard to, uh, hard to sleep sometimes. The children especially. Um, Mercy's, she's conked out. Mercy gets in her bed. She's asleep. She loves it. Um, in the in the castle itself, um, Mercy's quarters, like you go into through a big door and you come into what's a living room, like a, an actual that's her private like living room area. And there are several doors off of that, uh, which lead to different rooms. One is is Artis's room. So Artis has her own room, but it's like right next to. Mercies, but they share a living room. There's a couple other doors there, which is a spare room and bathroom, stuff like that. Um, but there is a spare room or two because, you know, you never know if artists may get a sibling one day. When you're building a castle, you don't know how that's going to work. Uh, so it was designed with opportunities. Uh, in this situation, there's n uh, no one's really staying there. Sometime, when the in the early years, Deacon stayed in one of those rooms until he ended up getting his own more private room in the... In the uh, in the, in the castle. So, we're going to go ahead and move on to the festival, which is the next day. Uh, this next area is going to be a lot of reading, so I may stop for a moment every so often to take a sip and wet my whistle. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to tell the story of the festival. It is the evening of the first day of the festival. It will officially kick off at sundown, which is coming up very, very quickly. The streets of Serenity, of course, are filled with music and dancing, all the vendors and celebration. In many areas, pop, elbow to elbow, you know, areas a little bit more thinner moving out. There's music, of course. You can expect there are multiple bards in different areas and just on the streets singing. They're little hats out or whatever, trying to you know make a little bit of money for their stuff. Uh, the professional minstrels and such, as well as some that, of course, were hired by Mercy specifically, you know. In her and her group have gathered, like I said, on this big balcony that oversees the park right at the bottom of the hill, next to Serenity Lake. There's a small stage that's been set up there for the choir, and um, Artemis has a bunch of her clerics kind of meandering around there, waiting for them their turn to get up in there and do their singing. Uh, of course, there's multiple Templars down there as well. It's the safest time of the year. There's guards and everything anywhere, but no cleric rarely goes anywhere. Any, most clerics don't go anywhere without at least a Templar. And they're more bodyguard type kind of thing. Uh, though there's never been a real issue. The mages, of course, still have the uh, have their personal bodyguards. The battle mages. Uh, the spell guards still definitely exist. Those still wander around with their mages anywhere they go. With exceptions. I mean, Petal and Deacon don't have one at this point. They're not battle mages. Once someone becomes a battle mage and goes, starts down that path is when normally someone from the spell guard will be assigned to them. You're going to be a sea mage. You're not going to get a spell. <laughs> spell. <laughs> That's just kind of how that works. Um, which I'll be honest with you, from a story point of view, when we talked about years ago creating these characters, I did not name the children. Um, we'd always planned on playing these as the next generation of characters. I think I've talked about that in the past. So the children, their names, uh, gender, um, and what classes they were going to end up being were chosen not by me, which was fine. It's, it worked. It gives me something to work with. So um, they decided that. I'm just kind of carrying that on. So uh, it, it seems an interesting pairings at time. Know that I did not create that. <laughs> but I'm still, I'm still guilty, of course. Um, so yeah, so like I said, the, the temple, they're down there hanging out, getting ready for their such. Um, there's a mage... Uh, probably of decent rank, hanging out around Mercy and them on the balcony. Um, you'll find out why in a few minutes. It's a festival thing. Um, but on that balcony is, you know, everybody but Michael. Because he drew the short straw, and he's over there with the kids on the other side of the lake. But on the side, it's going to be Artemis and Draven. Because, again, Draven walks openly around the city. Now he's known as just another Joe. Well, obviously, you know what I mean. Um, and Ulrich is going to be there with Mercy, of course. Dandy's there. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, going to be a couple of the Knights of Serenity will be there. Some of them will have different jobs, um, things of that nature. And Seamus, I'm sure you can understand, on this, one of the busiest weeks of the year, Seamus and Miyash are both tonight chilling in the inn, right? Because that's, that's going to be a big draw for people. Oh, come to the inn and meet one of the Knights of Serenity. He'll be there slinging drinks. Maybe he'll buy you one, you know. It's a good time for them to drum up business as well. They, they 
Seamus lives in the inn. Like he, that's his place. They got a room. So does Miyasha. Miyasha spends most nights there. Well, unless she's at the temple doing important stuff and she still has a room at the temple. So it's quite often where she, you know, she has to stay there for one reason or another. Um, there's almost always one of the main clerics at the temple: Artemis, Danica, Miyasha, or Kelvin. Um, one of them is almost always there to be in charge if some, you know, in case something ever does happen. You know, somebody gets sick, a plague happens when somebody's out traveling on an ambassador thing and they need healers. Somebody needs to be in charge to organize those events. So one of them is almost always in charge. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, so, again, Michael pulled the short straw and was on the other side of the lake, although some of the people in that balcony were a little bit jealous. You can understand, Mercy has to give her speech. Mercy does not like giving speeches. Draven, uncomfortable sitting in front of, you know, tens of thousands of, pe- thousands of people looking at the balcony. This Draven's like, this is not my mojo. Artemis, she did, to her it's nothing. She's fine with it. Ulrich has very easily come, come to grips with his position. As a knight, he was used to standing next to Mercy while important things happened. Now he's the king, standing next to Mercy when other important things happen. <laughs> That's kind of how that works. Um, and the other knights as well. The knights at this point um, are nobles, and a lot of times there are sections of serenity um, that they are responsible for, right? Quan, if there's a, you know, if this town or this area has a problem, there's a dispute, there's something's going on, then this knight is in there. Doesn't mean other knights can't or you may not bring help, but depending on what it is, usually there's a knight that oversees certain sections of serenity. Without doing that, it would be too hard for everybody to oversee everything. So it is broken up into, I, I don't even know what the word would be, territories, I guess, um, that they're responsible for. They don't own, they don't run it, they don't profit from it, they just oversee it. Um, and they take care of it, if you will. As such, they're also going to be in charge of any of the military in that given area. Okay, so all that happens, and finally the sun is falling down and going behind the, the trees. Night is about upon them. Uh, you guys, even with that, the, the city's lit, right? You can imagine there's torches and lights and candles and flares, whatever else, magic things, uh, lamps and things. There's all sorts of light everywhere, so it's well lit. Uh, even late into the night, there'll be people dancing and singing. Food vendors, there's a lot of food vendors that'll come in with their snacks and treats, craftsmen, all that kind of stuff. All stuff all over the place. But finally, the sun does dip behind the distant trees, and Mercy rises to give her speech. Because she, again, is the one who opens up and makes the festival official, even though people have been pretty much partying for two days at this point. Uh, The crowd slowly comes to silence as Mercy and Ulrich stood to address them. Though the streets were packed with people throughout the city, farther than they could see, a spell had been cast by one of the higher mages that would let everyone hear their words. That's where I reference there's a mage there for a specific reason. While Mercy dreaded these situations, she actually had quite a knack for it, quickly getting lost into the passion of her own words. So she gets up and you know everybody's applauding because everybody adores Mercy. Everybody's applauding and the knights are applauding and Artemis and Dandy are applauding. Everybody's applauding. Mercy's like, yeah, please guys stop. There's enough people to... She gets up there and you know she waits for five minutes for the crowd to die down from all the cheering and hooting because they know she's about to talk. Finally, things quiet down. She begins start gets ready to speech. Another thing bursts out. She got to wait for that to end. She's like, oh, I was about to go. I was ready to go. Things finally kind of calm down again, and she's ready to give her speech. And she starts slow and she builds up. You know, 
again, like I said, getting lost in the passion of her own words. She's always shy. She rarely knows what she's going to say ahead of time. Maybe her and Ulrich would come across up, up with some ideas of things to address, but in the moment, she always does well. So she began by speaking of her people, the citizens of Serenity. She told of the many dark years that they had survived. She spoke of how they'd all come together to fight back the many dark forces that tried to rule them or destroy them. She told of the battles and of the wars, the losses, and the sacrifices. One moment. Sorry, quick thing there. Um, <clears throat> and their sacrifices. She proudly proclaimed them a people of pride and honor who had finally won their freedoms they deserved. As she spoke of these things, the huge crowd could be heard agreeing, growing louder in applause and cheers. By the time Mercy's voice had built into its crescendo, the crowd was alive, roaring in agreement. As Mercy spoke her final words, thanking them for their trust and for their love, the crowd was almost deafening. Mercy waved and announced the Festival of Unity had begun. You know how that is. You're talking. You've probably seen people talking in groups, and yeah, yeah, preach on, sister. you know that kind of stuff. And it's just building up and roaring, and she's playing the crowd, <clears throat> and she's not really knowingly playing the crowd. She just she happens to have a knack for these things. It's charisma, and from a Dungeons and Dragons point of view, you have a high charisma. It's not always mean you're attractive. It means you're good at speaking. You're good at leading others. You attract people. Your mannerisms are such that people find them pleasant or trustworthy or you know, honorable. It's things that people are attracted to you for that. Mercy is a good leader because of that. Mercy had a pretty good charisma. Um, but that's one of the stats that a lot of people don't pay attention to, especially when you're a fighter. Um, but for her, it did. And it was something that I, you know, I am the type of person where we're playing D&D in a group and we've been playing for a long time. I might just change an ability score of yours. Like, the way you are playing, the way you're acting, I'm going to give you a Christmas point. Or I'm going to give you, take away a Christmas point if you're a douche all the time. I mean, you know, if word gets around you're a horrible person, people know about this, there's less likely people are going to like you when you show up. So, as a DM, I will adjust things based on how you play to complement your play style. You know, make it, okay, this makes sense because this is the way you're being. Not as a way to punish anyone, of course. <clears throat> So as the crowd is cheering loudly and screaming and hoodling and whistling and all that kind of stuff, Dandy smiles at Mercy. Uh, not only is Mercy one of her very best friends, her sister, really, in fact, in many ways she was Dandy's hero as well. Um, and Dandy looks up to both Mercy and Artemis, right? Artemis, for, but Mercy being the hero, the, the leader, the charisma, all that kind of stuff, just a little bit more of, of hero worship, uh, from her, even though Mercy's never treated Dandy less than an equal uh, or as Adam, Artemis. They, they, they all view each other as four regular people who go around and happen to save the world a few times. They don't see themselves in their roles until it's kind of slapped across the face for them. Um, Dandy giggles, of course, at the crowd who refuse to quiet down. Because after like five or ten minutes of roaring, they're like, okay, we've got more things to do. And, you know, Ulrich will stand up like, hey, get quiet. But then they think Ulrich's waving. So everybody starts waving at Ulrich and it gets loud again. Ulrich's like, no, no, no. Artemis has a speech. Whoa. <laughs> and so it takes a while for them to... And Dandy just gets a hoot out of that stuff while they're trying to get it to, to go down. The screaming and cheering and whistling and yelling goes on for 10 minutes before finally Artemis rises and just walks to the edge of the balcony. 
she, she was going to wait for it to quiet down before she gets up there, but realizing she needs to take this into her own hands, she does so. She stands up and walks forward, and now with her standing there just patiently looking down at them, you can imagine they're like, okay, the preacher's looking at us, we're judging. You're not drinking. Hide that drink, man. Don't let us see you drinking. Stuff like that. Somebody trying to wipe all the grease of the ham hock they've been munching on while watching. And, oh, the priest is looking. You know, they just, people look that way, right? It does take a while for things to calm down, but finally, it does. Dandy smiles and sighs. Artemis, much like Mercy, was a lovely speaker. But prayers aren't quite as exciting as Mercy's speeches, and are usually quite a bit longer. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, it's Artemis. This is going to be boring, but I got to support my friend. you Because know, you, again, most people... An exciting, rousing speech versus a sermon, you know, depending on your, your, your situation. Very often be like, I'd rather hear door number one. So Artemis begins her long prayer. Uh, Dandy can hear music and celebrating further into the city. So the whole city's, even though up close things have quieted down some, way on the streets further out, there's still music and stuff. You can still hear it out there. And people laughing and cheering. There's always still a roar. People can hear Artemis because of that spell. And most of the people up, you know, in this area have come to hear them speak, right? You can imagine that, right? People who are off doing trades or selling stuff, they're here to party and to do their stuff. But the people who've made their way to the front, they're there because they want to see the royal family. They want to hear the speeches. They want to hear the temple singers. They want to be up front and part of that actual, that part of the celebration that involves the people that they look up to and idolize their rulers and leaders and such. Um, so Artemis goes about, you know, giving her speech. She goes on and does that. And Dandy was incredibly proud of herself. She had to stifle at minimum five yawns, and she's positive no one noticed. Like the whole time that that's going on, Dandy's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, she's very proud of her ability to stifle a yawn when needed. And she's had many years of practice uh, going to Artemis' sermons. So, you know, <laughs> it's always a bit of a running gag. Artemis, she's like, hey, Artemis is going to speak. <laughs> it's one of those things. Um, but finally, of course, Artemis finishes her prayer, and again, the city breaks into applause and celebration. Uh, maybe not quite as loud after People are very excited about that as well. And again, Artemis is viewed as a spiritual leader, right? This is someone people adore as well. And again, she's lovely. She's an elf, right? You know, most people here realize they'll be long dead before, you know, generations after them, she'll still be here running the temple, you know? That dawns on people sometimes. And it's things that Mercy and, Dan and Dandy and Artemis have talked about, you know? Artemis is like, you know, Mercy's like, you know, one day I'm going to be gone, and this kingdom's still going to be here. You know, it's important that, you know, what we build here carries on. Artemis would be the same. You know, they, they discuss those things. Because Artemis would be, a hopefully, a friend and advisor to the long line of Mercy's uh, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who hopefully will one day continue to rule and run serenity in the positive and loving way that she does. So at this point, the temple choir begins to sing. Music and dancing break out everywhere. So the choir is singing, and it's not like a, 
a boring song. It's a choir singing, actually a quite jubilant song of celebration uh, that does not target a specific God, but all in all uh, for peace and loving and heroic stuff. And So people are singing to that. And then in the distance, you can hear other music playing faintly. People are dancing in there. And so the prayer goes on and does their thing. So that the choir goes on and does their thing. And it's quite a jubilant thing. So people break out and cheering and there's laughing. So, of course, the crowd gets loud again, not from a all-focused way, but just through the celebration itself. Well, um, Dandy, Artemis, Mercy, spouses, and knights are just kind of hanging up on the balcony, occasionally waving and watching the... Cause they, now they get to sit back and watch people sing, and they get to enjoy it. they got a front-row seat. I kind of viewed this balcony as much like the balcony you'd see at a, an opera theater, where there's a big balcony on the side overlooking things. And they give their speech, and then everybody watches the show kind of thing. And the show has a lake behind it. And way over there, past that, is where the Flame of Serenity will get lit after the choir is done. So, as I mentioned, singing, music, dancing, everywhere, all over the place. As the city, now it's official. Everybody's breaking into the fun of the festival. Dandy stands there smiling at her gathered friends and loved ones. Uh, and then she begins to look over the celebrating crowd. Um, it's an amazing thing to see. I mean, especially for a Kender, right? Accepted by these people. Not treated poorly like most Kender are. And she's standing there, just kind of looking over the city, over its people, over the celebration in front of her. And as she looks across the crowded street and her park, and the park, her smile begins to fade. There was a strange feeling in her chest. She felt a small, growing sense of dread. Something was wrong. Dandy's eyes began to scan across the thousands of people, a sea of bodies before her, looking and listening, searching for whatever it was. What was the thing that's standing out? Something's wrong. What is that? Looking, uh, maybe it's nothing, she thought. Maybe just a weird smell from one of the food vendors, or a choir singing slightly off-key. How did they even know what a key is? Why is it a key? What does it unlock? In fact, if it is a key, then why... No! Screamed a voice in the back of Dandy's head. Concentrate. This is no time to be a kender. This is serious. More seriously, she looked again, taking in everything she could see and hear before. She focused on all of the many sounds, the singing, the music, the cheering, the talking, the yelling, the screaming. The screaming. Faint and so far away she couldn't be sure. She thought she'd heard a scream that was not in celebration. Dandy looked around at her friends who were standing there smiling and laughing and chatting with each other. All of them except one. Draven had stood and was standing at the balcony's edge, scanning the crowd. She wasn't at imagining it, she thought. He'd heard it too. Dandy began to feel a panic rising inside of her as she continued to search the crowd frantically. She looked far down the main road of serenity that led to the, led to the keep, led to the outside of the city. Movement in the distance caught her eye. It took a moment to make it out but it appeared it was a rider coming this way down the streets. 
she could just barely make out the colors of the rider, who was wearing the colors of a Serenity warrior. And he and his horse were coming down the street through the revelers, and he was going fast, too fast, almost recklessly through the crowd. She again looked down at all the wonderful people below her who were simply enjoying the festival. And it was then that she saw the face in the crowd. She only saw it for a second, and then it was gone. But in that second, she saw a face glaring up at them, a face filled with violence and hatred. As she searched harder and harder, again, a face would appear within the masses, only to suddenly disappear. She turned and looked once more down the road at the rider charging towards the keep with reckless abandon. She saw the huge crowd down that street, and through the city a sea of moving bodies. And they were moving towards her. She heard the singing, the music, the cheering, and the screaming. And then she knew. Mercy stood at the balcony's edge next to Dandy, smiling down at her people and waving. Out of the corner of her eyes, she saw Dandy move, then felt the small Kender's hand grab onto hers and squeeze. Mercy turned her head down and smiled down at her little friend, her, her, lovely, her little friend's lovely face. And Mercy's smile melted away, and her heart grew cold. On Dandy's face was something that shouldn't be there, something impossible. Something Mercy had only seen there once, long ago, in a cave on an island over a thousand miles away. On Dandy's face, Mercy saw fear. Not just fear, but complete terror. Dandy's face turned, looking away, and Mercy followed her gaze across the lake. To both women, it seemed like everything was moving in slow motion. Dandy's gaze turned, Mercy's following it. Far across the water, she could already see that some of the paper boats' candles were already being lit in preparation of being set across the lake. And then from where she stood, Mercy saw the flame ignite. Not the warming glow of the flame of serenity, but a flame that was just as bright, just as powerful. A purple flame. Menandra, Mercy whispered. The children! Mercy Dandy screamed. With a snarling roar that could only be described as bestial, Draven threw himself over the balcony. A fall that might have killed a normal man was nothing to the half-demon, half-vampire, and it seemed as if he was already moving forward before he hit the ground. Like a blur, he pushed his way through the crowd, literally tossing, uh, tossing and uh, shoving the people out of his way. To arms! cried Mercy. We are under attack! Her morning star that was sitting with her armor back in her quarters suddenly appeared in her hand magically. There was a moment of confusion for Artemis and the nearby guards. But for Ulrich and the other knights of Serenity on that balcony, Quan, Flynn, and Seth, there was no hesitation. So well trained they were, and so much faith did they have in mercy, that all four men immediately broke into action. Quan was gone an instant, rushing to the beacon on the keep's highest tower. The others immediately began shouting commands, setting the well-trained military of Serenity into action. 
And while all of this went on, Dandy had been rushing down the stairs to the little park and finally made it outside of the keep's official walls. Like Draven, she too was rushing towards the children on the other side of the lake. As Draven made his way through the confused crowd, he knew the others were there as well, moving to intercept him. The first of the vampires finally moved to stop his path. Vampires are powerful undead, with incredible strength and speed. This one's head hit the ground without Draven breaking a stride. Much further back, Dandy also sensed the vampires so near. Yet that wasn't all. Something or someone else was there as well, and she felt whoever it was was keeping them away from her, though she did not know why or how. Back at the keep, Mercy was given a report from a rider who'd arrived from the outskirts of the city. Undead were attacking the city. From the information reaching her, it seemed thousands of them, of all types and races, moved towards the city in a single horde. Forces were being sent, all warriors and mages summoned. Mercy wanted nothing more than to follow Draven, but the lives of thousands were in her hands. Mercy turned to Percy, the Templar in charge of Artemis's security force for the night. Get her back to the temple, back on holy ground. Take as many men as you need. The hell he will, shouted Artemis, before the Templar had a chance to speak. Artemis, Mercy sighed, I don't have time for this. I can't worry about you and do what... Mercy, Harriton, you are a damn fool! Artemis yelled, stepping right into Mercy's face. Mercy was shocked silent. Artemis had never spoken to her in that way. The whole room felt hush. This is not an army your warriors are trained to fight, Artemis continued, speaking in a calmer yet authoritative voice. This is not an enemy your battle mages will give you the upper hand against. My clerics can. Our faith and our magic is better suited to fight this danger than anyone, and my Templars are trained to fight by our sides. Artemis looked Mercy in the eyes and then speaking in a tone that radiated power, anger, and a hint of dangerousness, said, I will not cower in my home while my people are slaughtered. You will take me and my forces to help fight this darkness, or by every god there is, I will take them out there and I will do it myself. The tension in the room was enough to drown those there, as these two powerful women, both leaders and queens, stared each other down. You're right, Mercy re replied a moment later. We will need you. I apologize for suggesting you should abandon our people. What do you say we do? Artemis turned to her Templars. Percy, you will take everyone we have here and make your way to the temple. Any cleric or Templar you find along the way, you will send to assist Serenity's forces. If you can, get Miasha from the inn, and at the temple leave only those needed to maintain the defensive spells and those unable to fight. Everyone else is to join the defending forces or help get as many citizens to the temple as possible. I will be going with Queen Mercy. Percy gave only the tiniest bit of hesitation before nodding and then leaving to fulfill his orders. And the children? asked Mercy. Artemis fought back the tears trying to escape. We must trust in Daven, Draven and Michael. In this battle, they are our strongest weapons. So you can imagine the, the position that they find themselves in. These two had children. 
on the other side of the lake. And Menander burst into purple flame. And Menander's purpose is to fight undead. He can sense undead. He knows when they're around. can read them. Knew more about undead than any probably living person that existed. As Menander had existed for several thousands of years at this point. Which is a question I was asked recently. I realized I'd never addressed. Menander had existed for thousands of years and passed through the hands of many. Um, Menandra had a habit of choosing who, we, who wielded her. So if that purple flame ignited over there, that means Menandra sensed undead, which means there's undead somewhere near those children. And as much as they want to save their kids, these two ladies are responsible for the lives of tens not a hundred thousand people not just the people that live there but all the people who are visiting the ambassadors everybody the nobles every person here well I'm sure many people will fight as well it was up to Mercy her knights and now Artemis to see that those people were saved even though it meant not directly going to save their children Draven on the other hand is of all of them honestly the strongest Mercy and Darsh are powerhouses in combat at this point. But Draven still dwarfs them. I'll read on. If, if that's okay. <laughs> so, across the lake, children are gathered. Not just their children, but a bunch of children. Probably 30, 40 kids there. Going to be sending their little boats out on the lake. People that were chosen who had something special. Probably some adults, maybe some elderly. Sending a little, little boat over there for their loved one who may have passed before them. Um, there's going to be several Templars there as well. If not several of... Uh, probably a decent-sized chunk of Mercy's knights and warriors. Not knights, but warriors. None of the knights are there. The only one that's there that's a, a named character we know is going to be Michael. Uh, but there's going to be a... A group there. If Princess Artis is over there. You know Mercy's going to have probably some warriors. Earlier on, I mentioned how the children walked to and from the school and from the temple and the mage tower and things. They didn't always have bodyguards following them all around. Within the city gates, usually someone could see them, and they were pretty safe. Um, but in a situation like this, with all these people, many of them strangers, you can bet Mercy's going to have at least a few guards and Templars surrounding the children because you, you know, they're, they're noble children princesses, you don't need no kidnapping kind of action going on in the middle of a festival right? Is Darsh there? You can't remember. Darsh is not I mentioned Darsh was going to be there but because of a trade dispute back in waters that he oversaw he unfortunately was not able to come he had planned on being there um, but I said artist or um, uh, Maeve was a little bit disappointed but she also idolized her father, knew he was out there doing the right thing, and he, he's not a dad to just not show up. If, if he's not there, it's because serious business is going on. So no, Darsh is not there. He was unable to make it. Um, I'm sure someone is there representing him, but no one particularly named Jorn is helping him, so Jorn couldn't even come through, you know? Uh, so yeah, 
yeah, just to give a bit of layout of the situation. So Michael's not over there, him, four kids, and whatever. I mean, there's going to be nights. There's also going to be a lot of innocent people there. It's a festival. There's probably a crowd there as well, a small crowd, if nothing else. People who want to see princess artists light the torch for the first time, right? They can be there. Oh, yeah, 20 years ago, I was there when the queen was only 11, and she lit the torch for the very first time. You know, that's the type of thing people talk about to their kids and grandchildren. They got to see the princess do the special thing. But let's address over there. Menander cut through another of the shambling husks before the thing could get any closer. Several of the city guard and Templars fought with him, defending the children and other innocent citizens. The park that held the flame of Serenity was north of the temple against the forest's edge. And while there had been some growth on this side of Serenity Lake, Mercy had done her best to limit it, allowing the beautiful trees to continue to be the northern border. As he struck down two more zombies in quick succession, he took a moment to look around. Everything was wrong. There were hundreds of undead now walking out of those trees, many different kinds that should not normally be found together. Michael and those with him were pinned against the lake, any escape cut off. Menandra could sense undead everywhere, all over the range of her abilities. And that was the worst part of all of this. She hadn't seen them coming. She had had no sense of any of them until they were right upon them. Menandra was an incredibly powerful artifact. The soul of an elven paladin blessed by a god into the mighty weapon, Menandra's sole purpose was the destruction of undead. It would take a being of incredible power to hide itself from her senses. To hide the thousands of zombies, skeleton, husks, whites, and vampires that Menandra could only now sense would have taken a power unimaginable. Whatever it was, it still had itself hid and had not revealed itself, and Michael could only fear what else was to come. A sword flashed by his head, severing the undead arm reaching for him. Michael went to thank the warrior and then smiled to see it was Seraph. At fifteen years of age, Seraph stood head and shoulders above Michael. With his incredible strength and speed and the training he'd received from his father since the boy could begin walking, Seraph was a better fighter than most of the guards and Templars here. At his side was Deacon, also a force to be reckoned with. The two had trained together for years now and knew well each other's strengths and weaknesses. The other children fought as well, casting what few spells they knew, trying to help the other citizens. Michael was no fool. He did not command the children to stay back or hide behind him. They were all fighting for their lives, against an unending sea of evil, and they needed all the help they could get. And they needed it badly. Already several warriors had fallen, and while the defenders' numbers dwindled, the undead just kept coming. Michael knew their only hope was even now fighting his way to them. He could only hope Draven would make it in time. Because Draven can also be sensed by Menander, remember. Of course, nothing's trying to hide Draven. Menandra knows Draven's coming, but he has a long ways to go. And he's not trying to kill innocent people, right? There's a lot of innocent people crowded together who at this point don't even know something's really going on. Things are going on and people are in and they see a, a big thing light up on the top, which is, you know, the beacon of trouble, you know, to notify the other towers and stuff that there's something wrong. But a lot of people are like, oh, is this a fire? Is this a... 
just part of the show. People don't realize this is going on. As Draven is rushing through this crowd, occasionally killing a vampire that's trying to stop him, people are not sure what's happening going on. This is all right around them and within them without their real realization of what's going on. But then they knew. The citizens of Serenity were in a panic. It had taken quite some time before the singing and dancing revelers realized there was danger. But now, as the screaming citizens fought their way towards the temple and keep, towards what they hoped was safety, there was chaos. So imagine that. You're here in this keep, you're visiting, or you live here, and you live around the outer edge. Remember I mentioned the large temporary tents? Fields of tents of people staying. You know what I mean? Many of them probably weren't there. Some of them might be. Maybe they're skipping the actual things. So they can be up early to start selling stuff in the morning. But all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of undead start marching. What are you going to do? You're not going to run towards them. You want to run towards the people who can help you. The queen and her warriors. And then you know where they are. They're on the keep over there giving a speech. So everybody on the outside is fighting to get closer to the keep. And away from the undead. That's what Dandy saw in the distance, almost like a tidal wave of people trying to move towards her on the street. People were trying to flee the threat. And the closer to the keep, the less people realized that threat was there until it was almost too late. Mercy, Artemis, and Ulrich, along with every soldier and battle mage she could find, had finally fought their way through them to the Sea of Undead, making their way into the city. So at this point, they've already made their way into the streets. Along the way, they'd, gra- they'd gained multiple clerics of many faiths. It seemed even without hearing Artemis's orders, they knew their place and had made their way towards the danger, not away. Mercy could only hope it was enough. Finally, seeing the enemy in their numbers was staggering. She'd never seen a force of undead this large since the battlefields of Thorman more than a decade ago when Michael had been under control of the Death Stone. She hoped her knights and their warriors had made it as well. Each had gone in a different direction, hoping to fight off the invaders on all fronts. Artemis too prayed for the victory and hoping that the loved ones or her loved ones would be okay. She focused on the fight before and tried before her and tried not to think of her family. Mercy's force hit the wall of undead head on, and though her warriors fought hard and her mages unleashed their most powerful spells, Mercy quickly realized Artemis had been right. The cleric's spells and abilities were cutting down the undead with incredible speed. Artemis herself continued to make whole groups of them explode into dust and parts. But no matter how many they destroyed, there were always more. How long they might be able to hold out against them the warrior queen and high priestess did not know. Looking at it from a Dungeons and Dragons point of view, one of the cleric's most base and powerful abilities is the ability to turn undead. Right? Turn undead can mean different things. It doesn't mean they just turn and walk away. Sometimes it does. That can happen. But turning undead means different things. And the more powerful you are, the more that means to the effect of your spell or your ability. So, for example, at Artemis's level where she is now, as high as she is, low-level undead, right? Skeleton zombies, the little stuff. 
When she uses turn on them, they literally just obliterate. They explode, they crumble, they fall to death. Her magic, her holy strength is so much it just destroys them. Higher level undead, you know, white banshees, things that have a bit more power to them, those might turn, which means they'll flee away from her actively for a period of time. Some of those at her level, she probably could destroy or decimate. And at her level, even some of the highest, like vampires, maybe liches, her ability would have an effect on. Not for long, and not far, but she's high enough level that it would probably have at least some type of minimal effect on some of the highest levels of undead. So, against oceans of the weak stuff, casting her thing blows up a chunk. Casting her thing blows up a chunk. You know, And the lower level clerics are doing the same thing. Some of them may just be turning them. And they are turning away. That's still someone not coming at them temporarily. They can focus on the others. And some of these clerics are not just spellcasters. You've got clerics of war in here. Some of the clerics of the light. Paladins rolling in there. These dudes are thumping and casting. Like, they've got all of that mojo going on. I will now read on. They were running out of time. Michael and his defenders had been pushed nearly to the water's edge. Princess Artis had commanded several of the larger boys to help the youngest and elderly into the few small boats nearby and to row them out to the deepest part of the lake. Even though she was only 11 years old, no one questioned her. Like her mother, she had a commanding presence. And while there weren't nearly enough boats for everyone, she wanted to save as many as she could. Just then, Menander cried out a warning. Michael had wondered when the vampires would arrive. As fast as thought, three of them appeared. Michael knew they were powerful, though not strong enough to be, controlled by the, to be controlling this horde. The vampires laughed and mocked the defenders as they began their attacks. All three of them came at Michael, as he'd expected. They knew who he was. Merged with Menandra, the spear guided his movements, boosting his abilities. Even still, three of these monsters was a lot. I don't want to downplay vampires. In Dungeons & Dragons, vampires are boss level, right? They are powerful. Nearly impossible to kill. Well, when they're up and, if they're sleeping in their coffin, that's it. But up and running around. Ability to change form. Super speed. Super strength. Wave off most hits from regular weapons. You know, stab them with a regular sword, they don't care. Doesn't do anything. Fast regeneration. Uh, incredible improvision. Or night vision, 5th edition, that kind of thing. Uh, does an increase in level equate to an increase of range? Great question, Ashley. Yes, it does. Uh, traditionally, 2nd edition. Not quite there yet in 5th. But in 2nd edition, yes. The range, the effect of what you do, and what levels of undead are affected by it all increase as you level up. Uh, I haven't looked at that chart or anything in 5th edition yet. 2nd edition, definitely. By every other level, like 3rd level, then 5th, and 7th, you'd see a, a chunk where it had bumped up where the level in between it would handle a few more of the level you could already affect. And then the next level, you'd be able to do a few of new ones. Kind of like the spell charts. You're like, this level I can cast 1st level. Now I can cast more 1st level. Now I can cast more 1st level and a 2nd. Now I can cast more 1st and 2nd. 
nine curse, a bunch of first and second, and a third. It's kind of the same way with these. More and more of the weak ones, some more of the medium. Now I can do a large one. But there's many classes of undead. Many. So it, to get up to Vampire and Lich, you've got to be up in the teens to have a hope of even affecting them. Very good question. Thank you. Uh, where was I? Uh, but three of these were a lot. And that's what I want to address. Michael's good, but three vampires is a lot. Really. I don't want in any way to imply that, oh, he's just going to stomp out some, some vampires. That is not the case. Two fell back, moving away, while one came straight at him. This one was old and experienced. Even still, Michael very quickly began winning. Menandra has multiple abilities. We don't see those a lot in the story, but she has certain abilities of which you're going to see as we move forward. Um, one, of course, she does serious damage to undead. The purple flame thing itself can ignite undead of weaker level, and then they'll, even if she doesn't kill it, it'll burn. Um, and it's not the kind of flame that goes out with water. <laughs> you know, baking soda. It, it takes some work. Uh, so there's a lot of that going on. Um, but it has other certain abilities beyond just boosting Michael's speed and agility and strength, giving him... It will actually, at times, control some of his reflexes. They literally merge. And sometimes his arms will start to move towards something Menandra sent before he even knows he's a part of that. They literally become merged. And very often, when they're merged, they'll talk uh, as if they're a group. We don't think you should do that. We can see what you're, we can see what you're trying to do here, but we don't think that's a good idea. They literally talk as one and have a habit of doing that. I did it more in the early adventures. I didn't reference it as much in the end. Uh, but that is still something that happens. So he's going in here and he's fighting this vampire. And the vampire maybe has a weapon, maybe doesn't. Vampires, just like anybody else, can carry magical swords and rings just like another person. A powerful vampire in a fantasy world like this very likely has some magic doodads on them. So he's coming at him with his sword. He's, he's got a sword and he's going at Michael. But Michael is a little dude. Remember that Michael's very short. He's barely over five feet. He's short for a dude. And the spear, Menandra, is really was designed for an elf, Menandra herself, who's quite a bit taller than Michael. So it looks like the spear's way too big for him. Um, but he handles it as if it's not. That's part of them when they're merged together. It's why it's not quite as handy when he's fighting something that's not undead, because Menandra just doesn't have the abilities to boost that in those situations. There are very special requirements in the situation for Menandra to unlock her own powers, part of the limits of her own abilities. So he's fighting, he's blocking and parrying and spraying off, but the vampire's fast. The only way Michael's even coming close to keeping up with the vampire is because Menandra is literally sensing and seeing its movements quicker than Michael can. The vampire decides decide to make a quick burst of speed. And I'm sure you've seen this in vampire movies, right? Where all of a sudden, burst of speed, and now they're standing behind you, and they grab you or something like that. This vampire decides to do something like that. Dropping its guard, it does like a blink of speed, just a burst, which even a vampire can only do in burst. It does a burst to get right behind Michael. Um, he planned to blink and, and peer right behind him. Michael, though, had fought vampires before. Even as it moved itself behind him, Michael moved forward, jumping and stabbing, but spinning at the same time. So imagine if you're Michael and you're jumping at this vampire, right? The vampire's suddenly behind you. He expects that. 
So he pulls up, but as he's jumping, he spins in the air and starts thrusting backwards to where he was standing. He literally is jumping in a way where he would stab an imaginary version of himself where he was a moment ago. As he does that, the vampire rematerializes. So is Menander coming straight at him. Pierces him clean in the chest. Clean in the heart. And Menandra technically wooden handled. Her ability works the same as a wooden spike or a silver bullet. It has those same effects. It the 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 vampire begins to crumble into dust and stuff. Which you know you take off a vampire's head, it crumbles into dust. Uh, usually, if it's recent, sometimes they'll still keep their form. You have to burn them. Uh, it could just depend. But in this situation, he manages to pierce that one through the heart, and it crumbles to dust. I should I should read on about that. The beast began to crumble to dust, but Michael looked past it in horror. The other two vampires were attacking the children. Seraph had been doing his best to hold them off, but he was tiring. Deacon lay on the ground behind him. His condition Michael couldn't tell. Just then, one of the vampires successfully struck Seraph, knocking him backwards into the second vampire. The second knocked away Seraph's sword and struck him again hard. Seraph's crumpled to the ground. Michael began to move forward but stopped. The two vampires held their powerful hands just above the boy's chests while staring him straight in the eyes. Michael froze, understanding the threat. He didn't think he'd be able to get to them in time. So you can imagine that. The vampires see him and they're standing there like right above him. They're like, eh... You even try. I'm going to rip this kid's heart out. I'm going to rip this kid's head off. They're strong enough to do that. A vampire can rip a head off a body. I've seen it. I'm kidding. It's Draven. You haven't actually seen it. You don't know me. <laughs> but in, in serious, they could do that. Even with Menandra's speed, taking out two vampires before they could do something to the children, basically impossible. But then the vampires did something strange. They got an odd look on their faces and took a step back from the boys. They each gave Michael a little bit of a bow and then suddenly were gone, zipped off into the horde. So imagine that. They're sitting there and all of a sudden they get a weird look on their face. So they kind of stand up a step back and they're like... And they just... They're gone. Michael was about to run to the boys, but stopped. Menandra's warning screaming into his mind. The vampires weren't bowing to him. Michael spun around, looking to the trees ahead. The undead around him had stopped and were just swaying in place, no longer moving. And then he came walking out of the trees. Michael knew him immediately, though he'd never seen him before. Artemis and Dandy had described him in perfect detail. With his long black coat flowing around him and his black round hat on his head, the man in the hat was walking calmly towards him. Uh, because he's part vampire. Uh, Seraph, is part, yeah, Seraph is part vampire. He's a quarter, technically. 
He's half elven, quarter vampire, quarter demon. Because his father's a half and half. Odd how that works, right? When you think about that. And just like in our world, right? Someone has a kid. Someone has a grandkid. So that grandkid has bright red hair. Parents didn't have red hair. Grandparents did. Sometimes those things can jump a generation or two. Even more so for demons. Children of demons, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren of demons may suddenly one day have abilities no one can unexplain. They also can change physically, growing horns or the skin change of color. All sorts of weird things can happen to descendants of demons. And you never know when. Ashley says, ooh, man in the hat. And Jim says, nice. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're happy to see him. I can test the people in the story are not. I'm not going to step over to something else going on at the moment. Tevin fought his way towards the lake. He knew the children were there. He knew Draven would be going there. And he knew he had to help his friend. Tevin had been at the temple enjoying the festival with his friend Kelvin, who had been left to oversee the temple through the opening ceremonies. The Kender cleric had become a close friend of Tevin's, and he genuinely enjoyed his company. When word of the attack came to the temple, Kelvin immediately took charge, activating the temple's protection wards and preparing for its defense. When Percy arrived soon after with Artemis's orders, Tevin, uh, Tevin immediately took off. He began fighting his way towards the lake. Tevin, as well, was a very powerful and battle-experienced cleric, and he did a lot of damage. I want you to remember that. Little one-hit Tevin went to Draven's world with him and came back like 30 years later. In that time, he and Draven had become best friends. He'd become Draven's most you know, confidant, all that kind of stuff. And he had really souped up in power level. Um, Artemis has surpassed him at this point, uh, overall, uh, but Tevin is probably the second, if not third, strongest. Miasha might be close to him or topping him. And, oh, I, Kelvin is actually stronger than Miasha, so Kelvin might be the one cleric there that's still stronger than Tevin is. But it would be close. Tevin is, has got a lot of power, and he's much more of a melee fighter <laughs> than your regular healing cleric. Remember, he doesn't wear the robes, right? He belongs to one of the tribes. He's a tribal, so he wears like the the, the beeskin type dyed blue pants with the fringe on the side. He very often doesn't. He was, wears an open vest or, or shirt. Wears his hair long. Uh, but Tevin's got some punch, and he too, like Artemis, can pop some undead when needs to. You'll remember he did way way back the day that Michael's soul got stuck inside of a broken Menandra. They were being attacked by undead and vampires, and. Artemis was having a hard time fighting them. But then Tevin arrived and started popping them off. On his way to the lake, he had to stop several times to save innocent people who were in danger. He revered life and couldn't just let them die, of course. He did what he could and then immediately would continue on, trying to get to the lake. The closer he got, the more people needed help. Still, he fought his way towards the lake. He had to get there to help the children. He knew his friend would need him. So Tevin, you know, there's not going to be a huge celebration. Tevin's going to be living in his house two days to the north in the woods eating beans or something. You know, I don't know what Tevin eats. Man, he has a garden. He eats something up there. Probably 
meat and beans. I don't know. We'll talk about that later. But Tevin is here as well, hanging out with Kelvin in the temple. It's Kelvin's turn to look after it, right? Because Kelvin knows what to do. We switch back over to another group. You'll not have him, demon, said Michael. Not today or any other. Michael held Menander in front of him, preparing to defend the children. Menander could now sense the man, though just barely, and she could tell nothing of who or what he was. Michael knew an undead when he saw one, though, and whatever this thing was, it would not touch the children. The man in the hat made no reply. No emotion showed on his face. He just calmly kept walking towards them. Michael decided he needed to keep him as far away from the children as possible and began to move forward to meet him. Again, the rest of the undead just hanging out. Just kind of standing there swaying, waiting for whatever to happen to happen. He then brought Menandra down upon the ground, unleashing one of her most powerful abilities. I've only ever really shown this ability once, but way back when he first showed up and they didn't realize it was him, back when the land above Serenity was just that evil temple and he came in and saved them. He has an ability where he can take Menander and literally bring it down on the ground flat. Like, he's not poking it in the ground like Gandalf. He's literally smacking it on the ground and it unleashes a huge wave of holy energy. And as it's going through, it can decimate. So that's the, the physical movement. It's like bringing it down on the ground flat. Boom, and then he continues. Uh, let's see. One A huge swath of holy energy burst forward. It was strong enough to obliterate some undead, and had been known to send even some of the stronger clear into the air. As it came towards him, the man raised one hand, and then made a sweeping gesture. Like someone calmly batting away a fly, the man swept Menander's energy aside, where it shattered a whole bunch of the undead. Just it's like bunch of his undead just I don't care just the man in the hat hadn't slowed a step Michael moved in closer attacking the man physically Michael could see there was a sword on the man's belt though he hadn't drawn it yet as Michael stabbed and slashed at the man he easily dodged every attack moving ungodly fast Michael couldn't land a single blow and still the man's expression had not changed, and he did not speak. Michael decided to do something special. This guy's moving way faster than is expected. This is a move that Dandy had done several times back in the day, and it taught Michael how to do it. And that's where he kind of brings Menander around behind him, hooking it under the arm, and doing like a big swing. You, you've seen people do it a lot often with more like a quarter staff or a bow staff. It's where they twirl it, bring it around behind, and then hook it under the arm so they've got their whole strength that's leveraged against their chest. So they're using that leverage as just a very... By doing so, it's sticking out further than normal. You don't have to hold it, but you're, you're bracing it. So spinning it, you can get a much wider swath with it. If that makes sense. I'm trying to explain it in detail to you. Um, it was a special maneuver that Kender seemed to use very successfully with their hoop packs. Quick spin, hooking Menander under one arm and swinging wide. The man easily dodged the attack, but in Michael's other hand was a magical, blessed dagger. The swing itself was a feint, and upon the completion of the spin, it allowed him to stab forward with the dagger. So imagine that. He's spinning with this big thing, person jumps around, and at the end of that spin, his other hand suddenly has a dagger in it. 
you're fighting someone with this, that frees up his other hand to pull the dagger. <clears throat> the knife missed flesh, catching only the man's coat. As Michael stepped back, the man looked down at the slash in his clothes. Looking, looking up at Michael, still his face gave away no emotion. But faster than Michael had seen anything ever move, the man was suddenly in front of him. The man's open palm shot out and struck him in the chest, sending Michael into the air and knocking the wind out of him. Michael barely managed to hold on to Menandra and stay conscious as he hit the ground and rolled back up to his knees. Michael gasped for breath as again the man began walking towards them. But he barely moved a step before the flash of two long blades appeared between them. Draven had arrived. With a howl of anger, Draven attacked the man. Fifteen years he'd sought this bastard, and he was determined to end this threat to his son's life once and for all. You can imagine that. Fifteen years Draven's been trying to find this guy. Only ever been seen twice. The very first time in the room, the second time in Darsh's cave by Dandy. Draven's never seen the dude. I mean, obviously, he knows the dude. He sees him, he's got the hat on. They've all, been, they've all described him very well. But 15 years he's wanted to kill this man because he knows he's a threat to his son. Clearly, by the army of undead marching into the city. Draven is an expert swordsman. He had trained under some of the best warriors in all of the Hell Plains. He'd fought demons and monsters, men and beasts, and he'd been fighting for hundreds of years. I need to touch on that. I never told you guys Draven's story. I have that written somewhere. I need to do that one day. Um, but I have a story of Draven's early life, and part of that was his mother, being a demon, took him to the Hell Plains and sought out uh, a very great well-known warrior, a demon warrior, who owed her for some reason that Draven did not know. Um, but in exchange for clearing that debt, he took on Draven's training. Um, and Draven trained under him for about 100, 120 years. Um, Draven's a little older than he looks. Uh, but he trained under him. And he fought battles in hell and war. He'd done all sorts of stuff. And then at one point, there was an exchange that caused him to leave following that dude. Uh, and he traveled multiple planes. Remember, his mother had the ability to open portals to any plane she wanted. So they had the ability to travel anywhere, any place they wanted to go. As long as she knew where it was she wanted to go, she could open a portal there. Um, it was her best gift. Draven cannot open portals. Though from his mother, he learned how to, how to close them. That's why he had to go back into his home, his father's homeworld to close the portal his brother had opened. Uh, or his brother had been trying that for years. Did they meet the Among Us imposter? Not quite yet. <laughs> um, so, again, he put everything he'd ever learned into this battle. Everything he'd done up till now was just preparing for this fight. Draven attacked with a non-stop flurry of strikes and slashes, stabs and thrusts. His two scimitars moved so fast that the surviving fighters and children were unable to follow them. He swung, punched and kicked and used every trick he'd ever learned. Over the next few minutes, putting everything into every single attack. But through all of it, he could not land a hit. 
As quickly as he moved, the man moved faster. With every attack he made, the man dodged or parried. He still hadn't drawn his sword. He was moving so quickly that he was literally slapping away Draven's sword by smacking them on the flats of the blade. Imagine that. Sword's coming in. He reaches in. He's so fast he can slap the flat of the blade away. It was like he knew everything Draven was going to do before he did it. So you imagine that, right? You imagine that for Draven. Fifteen years. It's time to kill this dude. And he can't. He can't even get a hit in. The dude is blocking all of his expertly trained swords, dual-wielding scimitars. And the dude's literally slapping the blades away with his bare hands. He's wearing gloves. He did wear... I think he wore fingerless gloves. I'm trying to remember back to that. I'm pretty sure he wore fingerless gloves. Uh, but they're not magic gloves. He's slapping it away with the palms of his hands. I, I want to stress that. It's not that they're magic gloves or something of that nature. I mean, they would know that, but I'm telling you that. It's not magical gloves. I'm just trying to express to you how fast this dude is. But I was like, they could. There you go. <laughs> uh, so again, he was like he knew everything Draven was going to do before he did it. But then Michael was there, Menandra's purple flame blazing towards the man. Menandra's blow was blocked. The man had drawn his sword. Michael and Draven had fought together for years, and they attacked in unison, using each other's attacks to set up their own. And while they still struggled to land a blow, they were finally forcing him backwards, away from the children. What is he? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows, Ashley? What is the man in the hat? I know you won't tell us, but what is he? Who knows? It's a mystery even to me. Not really, I know who he is. I'm just saying. <laughs> but the man drew his sword. And now that he's fighting both Draven and Michael, they're still not getting hits in. They're not hitting Pater. They're not hitting Flesh. But he is starting to have to walk backwards. He can't just stand there. Both of them together are having an effect. Now his sword is out. All right? His sword is out. He has one single sword. And he is blocking both the scimitars and the spear with this sword and occasionally his hand. This guy doesn't have a shield. He doesn't do wield, and it is a one-handed sword. I want to stress these things. This is important. At no point does he pull a dagger and sword. At no point does he cast a spell. It's just he uses a sword, and he's fighting them. Occasionally slapping away some of the hits with his hands. The swords, not Menandra. He never hits Menandra. That's the sword always blocks Menandra. But the swords, Draven swords, which are magical, He'll block with the swords or occasionally with his hands. Sometimes with the back of his hand. Again, swords coming in, he, he bends his hand away to smack the flat of the blade. Like, he can see the blade. To him, it's going that slow. He's like, nope, 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 nope. You know, it's that kind of a thing. The other thing that right out of the gate... Oh, could the man in the hat be a demigod? A new one in the merge? Ooh, good thoughts. Who knows? Maybe we'll find out one day. <laughs> Not right now, though. Sorry, I was being a turd there. So as this fight's going on, there's another important thing that both Draven and Michael noticed during this fight. They can't see the sword. 
Like Zoltan? Hmm? Hmm? Who knows? Zoltan be the guy to ask. Haven't seen him in about 10 years, though. Silly Zoltan. Who knows? What? Okay, Jim, your last message says it was deleted by the Google moderator team. I think the word you use... It's actually Zoltan. Z-O-L-T-A-N. It's possible the word you typed meant something else that is blo- be, is a block word for Google. Some other language, maybe? Uh, but it's Zoltan. Z-O-L-T-A-N. Uh, just in case you want to type something in the future and not them not block it. <laughs> Never seen that happen before. Message deleted by Google moderator team. So, uh, yeah. I, I can only assume that word means something else somewhere else. You know what I mean? Who knows, right? Half the noises I make are probably a word in some other language. I, I, I don't know what everybody speaks. But they can't see the sword. And it's not because the sword's going so fast. I mean, they're blocking his blows as well. But the sword is blurry. Imagine that. Imagine that. Not like as bad as you see on TV shows when they blur stuff out. But it's blurry enough that they can't make out any of the details of the sword. It's a sword. It's a long sword. The guy's wielding a long sword just by its shape and length. But any of the details on it, for some reason, are fuzzy. Like they can't quite see what it is he's wielding. Important things to remember. So this battle's going on. All this stuff is happening. Finally, they had a successful attack. Draven attacked the man with both swords coming down at the same time. Overhead thing. Michael ducked under his arms and thrust Menandra forward between his arms. It was quick, but Michael felt the spear hit flesh. The man separated from them. And Draven could see a small amount of blood on the man's abdomen from a small or from a new hole in his shirt. The man looked up quickly, still showing no expression. And then suddenly he was before them, attacking with speed unseen. Both Michael and Draven were pressed back immediately on the defense. The man's attacks were continuous and deadly, and it was all they could do to block them. So suddenly he's coming in way faster than he was being before. Which you got to think, was he toying with them at that point? With what they were doing before? Now he's pressing both of them back. Or did they just make him mad? You can't tell. No expression. This went on for a minute or so, the fighting and such of this nature. And then he burst forward at Draven. Draven, of course, jumps back preparing to block this. But it was a feint. Instead of moving forward, the man stops and turns on Michael. Draven had not been his target. Mid-attack, his hand shot out, grabbing onto Menandra. For just a moment, smoke came from his hand, and in Michael's head, Menandra screamed. With a quick but powerful kick, the man's foot caught Michael under the chin, sending the small man backwards and sending Menandra flying through the air. Michael saw black before he ever hit the ground. Again, I'm commenting, Michael's short. This guy's regular height, maybe almost six feet, around six feet. 
kick right under the chin so hard Michael does a full backflip. Menander goes flying and he hits the ground. He's already out. Concerned for his friend and scared for those behind him, pushed Draven forward. The two men once again were in melee, moving faster and faster. To anyone watching them, uh, they became a blur. Draven pushed harder and harder, but with each moment, he could not help but realize the man in the hat was stronger. Sure enough, the man's blade poked through his defense, and Draven felt pain as the blade slashed his arm. Draven attempted to block again, but the man's sword cut a line across his chest. Attack! 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 Again and again. And Draven bled from multiple cuts, luckily all shallow. So it's like peri-peri slash, peri-peri slash. As quick as Draven's going, a couple hits, cut again. But finally the man seemed to tire of the battle. And with two quick attacks, Draven was disarmed. I worded it that way specifically. It's like he t- he's like, okay, enough of this. <clears throat> and Draven's swords hit the ground. Like he could have done it at almost any time. Draven made a last ditch, ditch effort, diving at the man, trying to grab him. But the man casually deflected him away and brought the hilt of his sword down on Draven's head along the side of his temple. Draven tried to grab him again, but again he felt the man's hilt strike him hard. Draven felt his own tears on his face as he fell to his knees. He reached out blindly, blood flowing through his eyes. And he felt his hand brush against the coat. But a final blow landed, and Draven saw only black. The man sheathed his sword calmly and began to bend down to grab Draven's body, appearing to be about to grab Draven's body. But then he heard stop from a high-pitched young voice that had a strange echo to it. He turned to look at the children. Maeve and Ran had pulled back Deacon and Sarah's bodies and now stood with Artis protectively before them. But standing in front of them, her tiny little hands wrapped around the long wooden weapon, was Petal. Petal's hair had turned white, and a purple glow shone from her eyes. Her little topknot was standing almost straight up. Menandra's flames glowed brightly in her hands. Get away from our father, she said again the echo of Menandra's voice with hers. For the very first time, the man's face frowned in anger, more and more so, seeming to grow quite furious. He stared at the little half-kender for a moment, then with an angry little nod, turned and walked back towards the forest. As he did, The undead he passed began to crumple around them, falling to dust and rot. Nearby, Tevin was almost there. He saw the undead around him and in the area all begin to fall to the ground. He knew he was nearing the park, pushing himself to his limits. As he drew close, he saw something in the trees, 
not far from the park. It appeared to be shaped like a male figure, dressed all in black, with black robes. The cow pulled up over his head. The figure turned, and they stared at each other for a moment. Demo could not make out the figure's face, hidden as it was, inside the, the cow. After just a moment, the figure's hand moved, and a black portal opened, and the robed figure stripped in and was gone. Demo did not know who that was, but the smell and taint of death and decay was strong from where he stood. Tevin's almost there. So you imagine that. Little pedal. Tiny. Not even as high, Barely half as high as Michael. Holding Menandra. Normally she'd have a hard time struggling just to lift the thing. But lifting it like it's nothing. Because again, her, her strength and speed being increased. No! Screamed Dandy. Running up, she grabbed Menandra and wrenched it from Petal's hands, throwing it to the ground. Petal fell to her knees, and Dandy lay ne- stood ne- sat next to her, gathering her in her arms, tears running down her cheek, cradling her daughter. Come back to me, she whispered, crying. Come to my voice. She turned and looked at Menandra and screamed, Let go of her! The little half-kender's hair began to slowly fade back to its natural colors. Her eyes began to lose the purple glow. Looking up at her mother, she began to cry. Dandy just held her, rocking back and forth as the two cried together. Now I've stressed in the past, when Dandy, the one time she merged with Menandra, she was more powerful than Michael was. She's more She's a better fighter. Uh, she did way more damage with Menander than even Michael would have been able to do. Even now, these years in the future. But it was then that Dandy learned that the one thing Michael had never told her is that to wield Menandra is overwhelmingly painful. It hurts every time. And he does it without saying a thing. It feeds off of his pain and his anger and his hatred of undead. That's what lets them drive together. That's what, that's what gives her the ability to do that. Which is why I mentioned earlier that there's specific scenarios for Menandra to be able to give Michael his power. Doesn't care how much Michael hates somebody, whether it's a dragon or someone who kidnapped his kid. In his heart, he's never going to hate anything as much as he hates undead. And that's the key to unlocking Menandra's power, is hatred and pain. Across the kingdom of Serenity, the undead began to fall. The weakest, the skeletons and zombies that made up the majority of them, uh, turned to dust. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, the majority of the forces simply fell apart. The strongest of them, the vampires and such, seemed to disappear, either fled or in hiding. Mercy's forces met up after assuring the threat was indeed over. Already her men were dragging what was left of the corpses out of the city to be burned and destroyed. Artemis and her clerics moved among the injured, helping those they could. All told, Mercy had to admit things could have been so much worse. The entire attack had lasted less than an hour. There were casualties, for sure, 
but surprisingly few considering the size of the attacking horde. Mercy had no idea why or how the undead army fell, but she'd use it to make sure they'd stayed that way. She couldn't help but think Draven had something to do with their victory. Just then, Sir Flynn came riding up quickly. Ulrich, Mercy, and soon Artemis came to meet him. He did not dismount. My queen, word comes from the temple, he said. The children were attacked as well. They are all alive, though there have been injuries. Draven, Michael, Seraph, and Deacon. They have been taken safely to the temple, but Lady Artemis is needed at once. Of course, Artemis gasps. Ulrich immediately called for a horse. Turning to Mercy, he said, Go. We will ensure what needs done here is finished. Get, get her there. They quickly embraced, and then Mercy climbed upon the steed brought to her. She reached down and took Artemis's hand, pulling the light elf up behind her, and then they were off, racing through the streets of Serenity, with Flynn in the lead, calling out, Make way for the queen! By the time they arrived, Draven and Seraph were almost mostly healed. They both shared an incredibly strong regeneration ability. Deacon was still unconscious, though stable. He'd been stabbed in the side by a rusty blade, while Michael had several wounds, including several broken ribs. They all would have been much worse off had it not been for Tevin's strong healing magic. He got them to the temple as quickly as he could. Several hours of healing and helping the injured after all the battle was won, after all the battle had worn Artemis and Mercy out. It was almost sun up before they both, along with Dandy, rode towards the keep. The children were locked up in Artemis's personal rooms with Draven, Michael, Quan, and Tevin. Seamus also was at the temple. He and Miasha almost hadn't made it. They'd been escorting a group of children, including their own, to the temple during the battle and were set upon by a group of the dead, including a vampire. Seamus had been seriously injured, and Miasha barely held them off when help finally arrived. A rosebush nearby lashed out with an unnaturally long vine wrapping around the vampire's neck. While it struggled to free itself, a, near, uh, a, a nearby tree ripped its root from the ground and lashed around the demon, holding it still. The tree had a long broken branch, and it turned creakily, reached out, and pierced the vampire's chest. It howled as it turned to dust. Kelvin and Percy and their Templars escorted them to the temple and sought to Seamus' healing. Artemis had cried when she'd heard the big woman had picked up the Kender cleric in a crushing embrace, thanking him through her tears. You can imagine this. Moving forward, Kelvin just saved her, her husband, and their baby. In the past, she's been hesitant about Kelvin. You've seen it. I've talked about it. I've stressed it. Nervous about him. Don't even want to touch the baby. From this day forward, anybody says the tiniest unword about Kelvin, they deal with Miasha. Seriously. Miasha's faith in, in the little guy is 100% at this point. Uh, and the two end up growing to become quite close friends. They were already friends. You know what I mean? They were acquaintances. They were work friends. Uh, but beloved, he became to the family. Quite often invited to the end. So, again, I'm going to touch on this. Draven and Seraph heal 
quickly. But even in this situation, they healed a little quicker than normal. No one talked about it. No one mentioned it. Um, and we don't know if this worked for Seraph or not. But we know how Draven healed that quickly. Draven has... No, we work for Seraph as well. Drinking blood will, will, will help increase their healing speed. Um, and it's many... Of the, many times it was the way Draven stayed alive for years on his other world. And that's because on occasions when needed Tevin allowed Draven to drink from him. This is why <clears throat> Tevin, although he's feasibly in his 40s at this point, looks like he's early 20s. The two men had discussed it long, long ago, and there was a complete understanding that at no time ever would Tevin be turned. Draven never wants to turn anybody, and Tevin doesn't want to be turned. They're both on the complete same page that way. Tevin is a cleric of life, of healing, and the thought of living in a death, in a body of death, a dead shell, isn't something he wants. But when Draven drinks from him, one of the side effects of that is that he gets a little bit of boost in his strength and such as well. Um, and he also ages slower. Not forever, but slower. He will still die of old age, though what that would be, at this point it's hard to tell. You know, He might live regularly and die looking like a young person of old age. It's never This combination has never happened before in the history of existence, because humans or those types never existed on... Draven's vampire world. So, I can assure you that in that park, the children and the few survivors had to see Draven drink from Tevin. Um, and it's probably the first time anyone publicly ever saw that. Uh, and while he's still cool and everybody loves Draven and all that kind of stuff, you can bet that's a rumor that's going to get around a little bit. The kids... No idea that was that way. I mean, they never knew Draven was a vampire. They knew he was special, you know, but the word vampire is never used. Seraph never calls him that. Draven doesn't use that word. Um, they know what a vampire is, but what they are is like a vampire. They're born, live, and die of old age. Very long age. They'll outlive elves. Assuming he doesn't die in battle, Draven would outlive Artemis, even though he's been alive almost five times as long as she has already. Um... They don't know how that's going to affect Seraph. Again, Seraph is a combination of things that's never existed before. So what all he can do, will be able to do, all that kind of stuff, how he'll live, it's hard to tell. We're actually almost done. We're going to be done in the next couple minutes. I guess I'll be done a couple minutes early, so that's good. Holding me into Tevin is a snack. I did, yes, I did make the Tevin is a snack reference. Um which was meant to be humorous, but in my mind, always knew that was going to happen, right? When he got there, Tevin was a walking healing potion for vampires. Um, and Draven used it, with Tevin's permission. You know what I mean? At no time would he ever forcibly do that. If today Tevin's like, never again, Tevin would be like, okay. Draven's like, I'm fine with that, no worries. They are best friends. They are. Just like Seraph and Deacon are friends. 100% um, trust in each other. And Tevin will die of old age. Draven will see that happen. And they both understand that. There's nothing in, in existence that's going to make Tevin ask for that. 
He is 100% against being turned. And Draven sworn he's never going to turn anybody. He's never turned anyone. Has no plans on doing so. He has the capability. He believes. He's never tried. But Shastra had told him back in the day that you know, he need he had to. He, one of the things is he should never do that. Only bad things would come from it. All right. So let me let's uh, finish this up a little bit. Right. We'll have a couple minutes to talk. Uh, so I'd mentioned that they were on their way to the keep. Uh, but now the three made their way to the keep. There was still one more thing that needed to be done. Mercy had already contacted Darsh through the orb, quickly speaking of the attack, but assuring him that Maeve was safe. Even now, he waited by his secret mirror, waiting for them to reach Mercy's, where they could tell him all that had happened. While the castle was already up and busy, dealing with everything that was going on, Flynn had ridden ahead to make sure that the hallway with the secret door to Mercy's hidden vault was cleared. Now remember, she has a secret hidden room in, in, in the keep itself. It's in a hallway that's rarely used. Uh, but right now, everybody's heightened, right? The whole thing's going to be going on crazy. So Flynn's made arrangements to make sure that hall is kept clear so they can enter without you know everybody knowing. Upon their arrival, they had their privacy as they entered the short hallway leading to it. Mercy opened the secret door. Only she and Ulrich had keys to, to followed by Dandy and then Artemis. I want to stress that. Uh, this was built by dwarves. Okay? Very skilled dwarves. Big time. This is perfectly hidden. It would probably take another dwarf or something magical to find it. Or a kender. Probably a kender, maybe. But when that was all said and done, it was magically locked using the mages from the mage tower. Only the head mage knows about its location. And only two keys exist that can open that door. One is held by Mercy, and one is held by Ulrich. The two of them are the only people who can open this thing. Not only is it hard to find, nearly impossible, and you'd be impossible to break through it and pick a lock anyways, but the spell on it would only be dispelled and allow entry with one of those two keys, which both of them keep on them at all times, except for me when they're asleep or getting freaky. Whatever the case is, but they're always there, if you know what I mean. Or hidden, kind of. Uh, let's see. Here we are. Uh, there we go. Okay. As they walked down the stairs, they spoke of the night's event, what they meant, and what needed to happen now. There were going to have to be some serious changes. Because now, they're not just fighting a person, they're fighting an army. And is this the only army? Seemed to let this go pretty quick. Didn't care about him anymore. Hmm? Does that mean he's got more somewhere else? Hmm? As they entered the large chamber that held chests of coins and jewels, magical weapons and armor gathered from many adventures, they saw the large silver frame mirror on the opposite wall. Once the command word was spoken, it would allow them to see and speak through it to its twin in Darsh's own secret room on his island. Another word would allow them to pass through, instantly stepping out of his, thousands of miles away, though if they did, it would be thirty days before they could come back through. They crossed the chamber, preparing to summon Darsh's image. So, the mirror is always swirling. Like, they don't keep it up in the blanket. It's always got a bit of a, like a, a, a swirl to it. Um, but there's a command word that they know they were given. 
And like I said, it clears up, and it's it's like there's no glass there. It's like they're literally standing in front of Darsh. Right? But if they reach out, they'd still hit a mirror. They have to use a second word to open it. And remember, any person that goes through the mirror can't come back through it for 30 days. I talked more about that in the previous adventure when they sent everybody back through and the sharks and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's why when Draven passed through the mirror, he couldn't come back to go after the man in the hat. When he'd gone through back to Serenity, he couldn't immediately come back. He was stuck over there while the man in the hat was on the island with Dandy. Darsh, Mercy, and Artemis. Abracadabra. Uh, I don't think we actually ever had a command word for the mirrors. Uh, we had command words for a lot of things. Mercy's Lions, the Magic Carpet. One of them was Lasagna, and one of them was Toaster. <laughs> so we, we picked weird words that meant nothing here, but if I say Toaster in a fantasy setting, that's just a, a nonsense word. It could be a magical word. Lasagna. Like I said, that could be, that's just like Abracadabra to somebody who doesn't know what a lasagna is. So it's just a funny way we did con command words. I always had some type of weird word that would sound interesting if you didn't know what it was. So here we go. As I said, they crossed the chamber, preparing to summon Darsh's image. <gasps> that was important. sharp, quick intake of breath. <gasps> That's all they needed. Mercy and Dandy spun immediately after hearing the short intake of breath behind them. Mercy's morning star once again magically appeared in her hand, but just as quickly Dandy's hand held two of her magical daggers. Neither of them moved forward, though. None of them attacked. They stood there. Artemis didn't move. She didn't dare breathe. The knife at her throat was incredibly sharp. She knew that even if she tried to cast a spell, her throat would be slit before she spoke the first syllable. The three women stood frozen, Mercy and Dandy seething in rage, and Artemis paralyzed in fear. Then she felt his strangely cold breath on her cheek, and felt the brim of his hat press against her head as he leaned in to whisper into her delicate, pointed elven ear. I think it's time we all have ourselves a little chat. And that's where I'm going to stop for today. <sighs> Hopefully, you all found this interesting. And uh, it was worth the time. <laughs> setting up a lot of stuff here, right? Obviously. Um, but that's where that's going to end for tonight. Uh, it took me a long t It took me a long time 
to figure out how I wanted to make this all happen. All of these things had to happen. And how to get them in the order to make the required parts fit together in a way that I needed them to. I uh, literally fought over it for a couple years. Uh, trying to figure out exactly how to put that in the order I needed it to, to get to this point. And that's the first time we've ever heard him speak. I think it's time we have ourselves a little chat. I've known that moment was going to happen for 10 years. So I'm tired of the man in the hat. Let's hope he doesn't want to kill everyone. Maybe he's a really good guy who's just misunderstood. <laughs> I, guess we'll, I guess we'll see. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, he has been by far the best villain I've ever made. I mean, the Emperor was good. The Emperor, I really enjoyed him. Just a cocky bastard. But very often, they, they had very little dealings with him. They dealt around him with his followers and his warriors and his armies a lot. There's only a few situations where they ever actually, even in his presence. Um, but the man in the hat, he doesn't have a name. He just kind of floats there, scaring the hell out of everybody for years. And again, hopefully you guys remember what he looks like. Um, I don't think I have the picture with me, but I'll see if I can grab it real quick. Bear with me just a minute, and I'll see if I can grab the picture that I use for him. Let me find out where I put it. Let's call him Chad. <laughs> Chad! That's an interesting name. It's a very interesting name. I don't know where you pulled that up. <laughs> that is funny stuff. Chad. Where in the world would that have come from? <laughs> You've intrigued me. What an interesting way to do that. Uh, let's see. Almost. There he is. So again, uh, the character himself, uh, I did. I'm, I created the character before I found this picture and saw this movie. Uh, but this is Carl Urban in the role of Black Hat in the movie Priest. Um, oddly enough, a vampire. Uh, but it is... Uh, an amazing movie that didn't get anywhere near enough credit. But uh, it was one of the... Just like when I found the picture that I used for Draven, it was exactly how I managed, uh, imagined him. 100%. I'm like, that was two specs, the design that I had in my head. Um, and so I was very, very happy with that. Search uh, Black Hat Priest movie, and you'll see a bunch of really good pictures of him in that role. I have a, I have a collection of them. <laughs> I've written a lot looking at those pictures. But yes, that is the man in the hat. So, well, we're right at 10.30. This actually worked out almost the perfect length, right? <laughs> so, see, the man in the hat. Woo, you come and see. <laughs> well, I, uh, I enjoyed sharing this story with you guys. I hope you guys liked it too. Um, if you did, 
you know, click like on this video would be awesome. Uh, give it a follow. Give it a share. If you have iTunes or Spotify, these stories are also available on there as Merged Worlds as an audio podcast, normally up within one to two days after it's done. Uh, so I'll have this one up here, uh, what's today, Thursday, probably by Saturday at the latest. Um, but yeah, I had a good time, and we will continue with this new stuff. What's an Allison Change reference? Oh, gotcha. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we will continue with this storyline um, here very soon. Hopefully you're intrigued. I tried to make it relatively cool cliffhanger ending. I read the ending to my wife uh, right before I started the stream. And she goes, they're going to hate you. I'm like, I know. Isn't that great? There's a lot of folks who, who listen to this podcast who really enjoy it, uh, who weren't able to make it today because of life stuff. Uh, so hopefully they get a chance to listen to it and I can get some feedback from them as well. But thank you all for once again letting me share my story and hanging out with me for Merged Worlds. It was a lot of fun. And I'll be back here next Thursday again at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the next thrilling episode, I hope it's thrilling, of Merged Worlds, the Dungeons & Dragons Story Stream Podcast. All right? Cool deal. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate you. I hope you have yourselves a wonderful rest of your week. And I'll be on Twitch streaming tomorrow and most nights between now and then. So swing on by. Only Draven Gaming. All one word. No space. No underscore. Come on over and hang out with us on Twitch. And if you have any Merge Rules questions, I'd love to answer them. You folks have yourselves a wonderful evening. And I will see you again very, very soon. Thanks for coming. <laughs>